Let's go. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 518. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from a studio known only to Jeff. Today's show is recorded on the 21st of April, 2022. In today's episode, an EasyJet captain dislocates his shoulder mid-flight, forcing an emergency landing. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the fall of American One. So get all settled in. Tray tables, seat backs, in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 518 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining us today from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire... Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hey, lovely to uh, be back on the show again, Jeff. Thanks very much indeed. And I'd just like to wish Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II a very happy birthday. Oh, that's sweet. Happy birthday to her. Uh, Let's continue with the next contestant from his studio in the air capital. Low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho, man. Hey, guys. Uh, (laughs) Glad to be back again after missing a week. I still got my fill of Jeff last week, but not everyone else, so glad to be back. Okay. Uh, that's right. Oh, I was thinking. What? I shouldn't say my fill. I didn't mean that to be negative. I still got to hang out with Jeff. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm making note of that. Staff. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah that, that's why I can only be on one show a week. <laughs> he gets everybody gets their fill of me once a week. All right, and also joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director. It's Liz Piper. Oh, where is she? Over there. Hi, everybody. Wait, you switched positions Hi, on me. I did. Trying to phone Well, I, I, removed, I removed Nick from the stream for a minute, just as a penalty. He put him in the penalty box for like Oh, okay. <laughs> well, very, very You've got good. Got to be careful around here. Yeah, you never know okay. what could happen I'll to you. See you guys later. All right, Liz. Cheers, Liz. Let's go ahead and uh, jump on into the news. What do you think, guys? Ew. Yep, sounds good.
Stand by for news. All right. The first item here is pretty much hot off the press. This is from the New York Times. And let's see. Uh, a YouTube. Uh, let's see. Let me get to the actual text here. The Federal Aviation Administration has found that Trevor Jacob, a daredevil YouTuber who posted a video of himself last year parachuting out of a plane that he had claimed uh, he had claimed uh, had malfunctioned, purposely abandoned the aircraft and allowed it to crash in the Los Padres National Forest in Southern California. In a letter to Mr. Jacob on April 11, the FAA said that he had violated federal aviation regulations and operated his single-engine plane in a, quote, careless or reckless manner so as to endanger the life or property of another. The agency said it would immediately revoke Mr. Jacob's private pilot certificate, effectively ending his permission to operate any aircraft. Reached by email on Wednesday, Mr. Jacob appeared unaware of the FAA's ruling and replied, who is this? How'd you get my number? Uh, no, he said, where'd you get that information? <laughs> oh, wow. He did not immediately respond to follow-up emails. Yeah. Uh, in a video posted on his YouTube channel last week, Mr. Jacob, a former snowboarding Olympian and now former pilot, uh, yeah. briefly addressed <laughs> the controversy saying, I can't talk about it per my attorney. But the truth of the situation will come out in time, he added, and I'll leave that at that. Well, I believe it has. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe he's hoping for some kind of a miracle here that they'll change their mind. Uh, the FAA does not have the ability to prosecute. It can only revoke and suspend certificates and issue fines. The agency ordered Mr. Jacob to surrender his private pilot certificate and said he could face further legal enforcement action if he did not do so, including a civil penalty of up to $1,644. That's an interesting sum per day if oh. he did not return it. Wow. Now, that is yeah. interesting. I'm more intrigued now by the sum than the story. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm thinking 1600 Why not just make it a nice even 1500 or 2000 or something? Yeah, pass this tax on that. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. You're probably right. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, so it's only $500, but since it's a Cal in California, it's uh, $1,000 <laughs> tax. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Uh, in a, uh, the, a spokes woman for the Transportation Department's Officer of Inspector General said in a statement that the agency which oversees the FAA could neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation into Mr. Jacobs' flight on November 20th. Uh, I Hall Boxes in our live audience, uh, which is huge, by the way, uh, says Massive. that uh, next he'll drive a vehicle off a cliff only to jump out of it and spread the ashes of his freezer bag friend. What did... <laughs> Yeah, I think he already did spread the ashes of his friend. Or did yeah, he? Yeah, but he has, he has lots of dead friends. I think oh, he, he went away and did friends. it somewhere else, yeah? <laughs> he did He did later on at the end of that video. Oh. Yeah. It's just the first half, the content in the first half of the video was so uh, breathtaking that I, I don't think anybody noticed it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall seeing that part of it. Uh, I know that was the intent of the flight, right? Uh, but uh liz is saying that it could be that uh, trevor has a lot of dead friends and their ashes <laughs> i don't know and he <laughs> likes wearing fire, fire extinguishers down his pants he does like wearing fire extinguishers they, in his pants that's for sure i i, yeah, I hope they catch up with him for that as well then <laughs> yeah. 
So, so what do you think? Uh, you think that was an overreaction by the FAA, uh, Nick Camacho? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I am a little surprised that, uh, I guess I'm a little surprised that it happened. I just assumed that there would be a way for, um, him to kind of talk his way out of it or the FAA to say, you know, this looks awfully suspicious, but, um, you know, we have no facts or hard evidence that it didn't, um, actually happen. You know, that you didn't actually have an engine issue. So, um, I'm a little surprised. I, I think it's reasonable. Um, and my understanding, and I'm, I'm not super sharp on this, but my understanding is when you get your license revoked, you can still, you have to go through the whole process again. Like you have to redo all your training. You have to take another check ride, but I think you can still go back and get a pilot's license. Um, I don't think you're forever banished from flying. I think you're right. But about I'm not that. sure. Even though that said in this article, of course, it was a New York Times journalist that was writing it, and they may not know right. all the rules and regulations regarding it. But um, I think you're. We we covered a story about somebody who uh, a female pilot that lost her. Uh, that older woman. Yeah, the older woman who. Oh, Martha Lumpkin. Under a bridge. That flew under the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then she was going through and getting all her certificates again. Yeah, that's so. right. That's right. Yeah. Good point. So I don't know if the so I don't know if that's standard practice or I don't know if the FAA can say, you know, we're revoking your certificate and yeah, and you do not have the opportunity to get it back or whatever. But hmm. um, they must have that power, surely, because you'd yeah. think so. They don't. I, I would think so. And don't say. call me Shirley. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> By the way, the uh, justification is right at the end of the article because they said uh, FAA wrote during the flight you open the left side pilot door before you claim the engine had failed. They wrote, and uh, before jumping out of the plane, the agency said Mr. Jacob made no attempt to contact air traffic control on the emergency frequency. Did not try to restart the engine by increasing airflow over the propeller and failed to look for a place to safely land, even though there were multiple areas within gliding range in which you could have made a safe landing. There you go. Yeah, mm. which I think those are all points that we made when we watched the first video and pretty much everyone on YouTube has made. <laughs> yeah, yes, everybody. That's right. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, w w whether it's actually done him good in the in the overall um, effect of his popularity on YouTube, I don't know, because people say there's no such thing as bad publicity. It's all mm -hmm. good, you know? A lot well, of people you, know about him now. Yeah, I went back and looked at his channel after I saw this last night, and he had been, it looked like he'd been making about one video a month or so and uh, hadn't made any videos uh since the plane crash deal until just a couple of days ago. So hmm. oh, really? I was so wondering he's not if cashing in on that then. Well, I was wondering if the legal activity, you know, if he had maybe gotten some legal advice to yeah. lay low or do something. Cool that, yeah. I don't know. Oh, fair enough. I, I think that uh, perhaps the, the photographic authority have confiscated his camera. <laughs> uh, Greg Peterson, our big ass fan in Lexington, Kentucky says one of the articles I read said he could <laughs> reapply in one year. Those articles are interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah. Spell hey, he's watching at thanks, thanks, He's watching at work. <laughs> hey, he's watching at work. Give What's him a break. the staff nowadays? <laughs> Sorry, Greg. I didn't mean to pimp you there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I did actually. <laughs> hey, you know, we're the friends. The other thing is, a couple of people said, like, what 
violation did he actually, you know, when we first started talking about it, that, you know, uh, there's kind of a question of, is it, can, can you not crash your own airplane? Like, is that, is that actually illegal? But they don't say what, uh, regulation that they use to justify pulling his license. Well, I think the, but, I think the term uh, as to endanger the life or property of another is is justification. Well, care, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so in the US, careless and reckless, the first half of that comment actually is generally associated with 9113 and that's like the bucket that the FAA uses to Ah, uh, uh, that's the cover all one, is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like anything they don't like but they can't explicitly <laughs> say like that's illegal. They say, "Oh, you were operating the airplane in a careless and reckless manner." Mm-hmm. Right, and it fair enough. Kind of a grayish area that they can utilize to to get people. So Liz is asking, didn't he after the whole aftermath of this thing like take steps to destroy the aircraft and right? He so recovered the aircraft. Yeah, yeah, they even mentioned that in here. Like he yeah. recovered and removed the I aircraft don't think before. They like that. Mm-hmm. Almost like he was trying to hide something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so I think everybody kind of knows that he did this for a, well, we're surmising that there's a very high possibility that he did this uh, for, you know, publicity, and uh, he got a lot of it. Now, could turn out that, uh, you know, is it worth it? I don't know. We'll have to find out in the future. Yeah, And I'm not sure he's even done with all of his legal issues, you know, I mean, I I would expect the uh, state or federal government to also have um, some input in that, especially now that the FAA has said, you know, we think this was bogus. I could see, uh, I could see this civil lawsuits, yeah, or the actual state government because the airplane crashed on either state park land or federal land, mm-hmm. and um, it seems reasonable to think that they could also have some input on that. Yeah, I don't think his troubles are over yet. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to this one. Um, the FAA uh, issues an airworthiness directive following uh, the Dubai incident a few months ago. You'll remember there was a 777 yeah. that was taking off in Dubai, and uh, for some reason that I still can't understand, uh, the acting pilot, uh, pilot uh, flying, uh, followed blindly the flight director commands, which caused the airplane to get uh, pr- rather low, uh, quite a distance off the end of the runway. And uh, the, let's see, the special airworthiness information bulletin is to advise registered owners and operators of the Boeing company model 777-200-200LR, 300-300ER, and 777-F series airplanes and model 787-8-9 and-10 airplanes for the potential for mismanagement of the flight management annunciation system on takeoff due to autopilot director uh, system, AFDS, being latched in altitude hold mode. Uh, So, you know, we covered this uh, pretty thoroughly, I believe, when we talked about this incident. Um, and, it, and it has some other, you know, the special airworthiness directive goes on as what uh, uh, people, um, well, how this in this, this issue could uh, be uh, activated and how to prevent it from occurring. Uh, but still, I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking regardless of what the flight director or the system did, um, 
I, what pilot, what commercial professional pilot would just blindly follow a flight director bar that's telling me to level off the airplane or descend shortly after takeoff? I, I, I still, this airworthiness directive, yeah, whatever. It's not even a, it says that this is information only. Recommendations aren't mandatory. So it's just a recommendation. We recommend that you don't fly the airplane into the ground is basically what they're saying here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I'm, I'm just not very... Sympathetic. Sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say, I, I agree that uh, it it seems a little redundant to, you know, it seems like they're kind of doing a, to me, it seems like almost a retraining issue. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I'm not as familiar with um, the documentation aspect of the 121 world, but uh, I was a little surprised to see that this was a, um, well, they call it an airworthiness directive in the headline, but then they call it a SAIB, which is a special, do they, oh man, I don't know it off the top of my head, special airworthiness information bulletin, right? which are two different things, but I guess the I guess the thing that I was just curious about is usually they have an action, and so the action here is just adding some bullet points to the manual. Is that am I understanding I, that correctly? I don't know. It almost it seems to me like as you said that they're just putting out like training material and say, "Oh, this is the way it works, people," and yeah. uh, be careful and don't don't do this. And if it, if it's telling you to do something that is just crazy to do. And nobody, I mean, it's like uh, the button that uh, no pilot would ever push. <laughs> Maybe that's, hey, you know that's what? That's the button. We may have that's solved the, the, the problem here. That is the, <laughs> that is the button that uh, yeah. no pilot would ever push. I mean, it's just like you don't follow blindly these things. I mean, the flight director is there to kind of give you guidance, not, you, you can't, fo- and, and uh, okay, let me get, let me step up on my soapbox here. The newer generation's or newer yeah, generations of pilots that I've seen are more and more so dependent on the autopilot and auto flight director systems that it really concerns me. I'm really concerned about where we're headed with all of this and the fact that people, there are some people apparently out there flying hundreds of passengers that don't have enough common sense to go, wait a minute, this thing's telling me to put my nose down to five degrees or whatever it is. And that, that doesn't make sense. It's always up around 15 degrees or whatever your initial uh, attitude is on a, on an airline, whatever airline or airplane you're flying. It's just like, why, why would you just like, Oh, okay. Um, the flight directors tell me to do this. So I really am truly concerned that this is, this is leading us in the wrong direction. And the FAA and the NTSB have made several attempts over the last decade or two to emphasize that we as professional pilots should uh, be exercising our manual handling skills and and taking all these things as uh, what they are for us their tools not something that we rely so completely upon I, I think I'll and this was something that happened to me um, more than 10 years ago, and I'll relate it again. I know I've mentioned it a few times on the show, but I was taking off out of Miami. I was flying with this uh, first officer that I was suspecting, just the way he was handling the aircraft when, when he was manually flying, that he was just slavishly just following the flight director uh, command bars. Um, 
And and sometimes when you feel, if you're ever riding as a passenger and you feel, you can tell that they're manually flying the airplane, but it's kind of jerky. I, I guarantee the reason for that is that they, the person that's flying, hand flying the airplane is just making these little minute little corrections because the flight director bar is moving this way a little bit, this way a little bit, the pitch going up, pitch going down. And they're just like making rapid uh, corrections to follow the flight director bars and pilots out there who are flying the airplane smoothly, manually uh, flying the airplane, they'll look at the flight director bar and it says, okay, you know what? I think that you should bring the pitch up a little bit because the airspeed is getting a little high or something. And so most of us will just kind of slowly, gradually bring the pitch up going, okay, I understand it's telling me that I should probably bring the pitch up a little bit to bring the airspeed back to where it should be, etc. Um, so anyway, I was taking off out of Miami. We get, we're taking off to the West. They give us a heading to three, four, zero or three, five, zero, something, you know, Northwesterly. And I thought to myself, I'm going to just hold off and not turn the flight director, uh, command bug, um, and see what this first officer is going to do. And so guess what? For two or three, four seconds, we continued West, even though he just told us to fly a heading of three, four, zero, three, five, zero. No turn, no effort whatsoever, because he was just slavishly following that flight director uh, bar. And finally, I moved it. And as soon as I moved the heading bug, he started turning the airplane. I'm thinking, what do you, you know, do you not have enough SA that you could do this all on your own? I, you know, you get what I'm trying to get out here. I'm concerned. And I think that uh, I don't know. I don't know how to solve the problem, though, honestly, because people are being trained out there now to become airline pilots and they're being trained that this is the way you do it. Our good friend, Steve, Louisiana, Steve, and I forgot what he calls himself now, who was, uh, working as a flight instructor at the, uh, program in, um, uh, Indianapolis. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they're still doing that program or not, but, uh, he was telling me, uh, about his instruction actually maybe when he, when he was still a student, uh, I was asking him about automation and, and hand flying and that kind of thing. And he says, nope, about 400 feet off the ground, 500 feet off the ground. I don't recall exactly what he said. Uh, we, uh, we turned the auto flight system on. And I said, really? Do, you, do they not have you guys do some manual flying? And he said, nope. Uh, it's like, this is the policy. And I said, did they explain why? And he goes, yeah. He said, that's what the airlines do. That's the way the airlines operate. So this is the way we're going to teach you how to fly this little diamond DA-40 and DA-42 that they use for their training there. And I'm thinking, man, that why? is really concerning to me. Yeah, why would they do this? This is their one opportunity to hone their manual handling mm -hmm. skills. Because once you're in the airline industry, you're going to have to do it their way. Right. If, if you don't practice it when you're in a light aircraft, when are you ever going to do it? I don't understand why you'd have that attitude. I don't know. Who knows the answer to that question? Now, I've got huge sympathy with your opinion, Jeff, and I, uh, I agree. But the problem is the same one you have. How do you, how do you change it? How know. do you teach people not to? Uh, for example, uh, there in the Airbus and my old outfit, there were only a very few occasions when you could uh, ignore the flight director. So your example of not turning the 
flight director. In our airline, that would have been quite correct because the first officer would not have been allowed to turn hmm. with and, fly, and, and ignore the flight director. I mean, one of the few occasions you could, for example, was on a parallel ILS approach when you'd been given a breakaway maneuver to avoid an aircraft that was encroaching on your parallel runway and, and might be a threat. Uh, and you, you reacted immediately by flying through, uh, not you know, ignoring the flight directors, flying through them mm -hmm. to get the manoeuvre going. And then by that time, the other pilot would have got his poop in a pile and twiddled all the knobs, right. and the flight directors would centre up again because that's now what you're doing. I, and I but, think it's because the Airbus, I think it's as opposed to all the other airplanes out there, the Airbus, I think I've heard, I don't know, I've never flown it. They say that it's very, if you have the flight directors displayed, it's essential that you follow them because the all the logic of the auto thrust system and everything else is tied into what that flight director is telling you to in, do. In in some specific occasions, that's correct. You can okay. get yourself in a bit of a mess when you do that. But generally, no. I oh. generally I would initiate a turn once air traffic had told me, mm -hmm. uh, and because if, if my FO was asleep or. <laughs> I'm joking, was working the radio or doing something, I would just start the turn and then mm -hmm. I'd, I'd let him catch up. You uh, rebel. But, but you're, not, <laughs> you're not supposed to. Or the alternative is don't turn the damn things on. Yeah. Fly raw information. I mean, we should all be capable of There's no danger in doing that. We should all be capable of doing it. Nick, Nick, and Nick, Nick, Nick. You know that nobody's <laughs> going to do that because they're not going to know what to do with the airplane. Well, that's <laughs> Without how the you flight learn, director isn't it? Bars. That's how you learn. No, I quite agree. And, and uh, I don't think we're ever going to get back to the situation, Jeff, that you and I grew up in. No. Because automation is only going to become more sophisticated and people will, will be forced to be slaves to it. Yep. I, I think, uh, you know, the thing that concerns me is the big, the big push that, you know, everybody's always talking about, when will we go to single pilot 121 operations and will we ever have unpiloted airline operations? You know, and the big push is always that we got to have people up in the front of the airplane the airplane can fly itself under normal conditions right but when you have issues you got to have people up there to solve the issues and when i i agree with that and when i always hear that or make that point you know i'm thinking of very complex situations right where you're flying along and you have you're flying along in the clouds right and you have one pedostatic system fail or something and you've got um disagreeing um attitude information or something like that, something that's hard to understand what's going on. And you have to have a pilot up there that intimately understands how all the systems work together to solve that problem. And then you look at this situation where they were flying a triple seven hundreds of miles over the ground, hundreds of miles per hour over the ground and not realizing that anything's wrong in a situation that should have been all sorts of lights going off for them. Um, I think that's what concerns me is that you're, I agree with both of you that the automation path we're going down is significantly different than what we've done in the past, but it also is kind of de it, it's also kind of devaluing um, the reasoning for having the pilot in the front. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I don't think there's going to be less of those issues. I think that there will just be fewer people that can handle them well. Uh, there, and there will be different kinds of issues. 
So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a single pilot operation, when his flight directors fail, that'll be an emergency and he will um, have to land the airplane or something, you know. Uh, they, we're going to have to take a completely different attitude to what we would normally consider to be an inconvenience mm -hmm. and we carry on and do the trip because something in the system wasn't working 100%. We go, well, we can work around that. They just won't have the opportunity. They just won't be allowed to do that. They, the aircraft will, you know, go. All right, you got to land because we don't can't trust you to fly without the flight directors or whatever. Yep. By the way, um, just on this, uh, I, I know it's um, it's a bit of a gotcha. This isn't it, and. One pilot has managed to follow the flight directors at 100 feet or whatever and go hurtling <laughs> around. Uh, where there's one, there's going to be another one. So I understand the reason for this directive. I'm also a little surprised how easy it is, how many different scenarios you can get the aircraft into this mode where it does a, an outhold, you know, directly after takeoff at, a, at an uncomfortably dangerous altitude. And I'm also surprised that it, you can do it in the 787 as well. So yeah. I'm just mm -hmm. going, why didn't someone design this out of the system when you moved on to the 78? Why is it still, and why is it still in the 777? So I don't know, perhaps Rick can answer that one for me. Yeah, they probably just, it was probably cheaper just to keep the systems, you know, try to keep many of the systems the same as possible yeah. to save money, yeah. probably. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's always the same trap. Okay. Save it. Save a little money here. Yep. Got to. Uh, they're out there to make money, but you have to also think about the safety consequences of all this stuff too. I guess. Yep. Um, next item. Uh, let's see. A TAP Air Portugal Airbus A320-200 registration. Uh, Charlie Sierra Tango November Victor performing flight 754 from Lisbon to Copenhagen was landing on Copenhagen's runway 30 at about 12.05 local time when according to ADS-B data transmitted by the aircraft, the aircraft veered to the left. The speed over ground reduced sharply from about 133 to about 120 knots. The crew initiated a go around. The aircraft, however, did not climb, but also did not build up speed. With the airport perimeter and houses of the Magabalele, I don't know, how would you pronounce that? Magabalele community in the way, uh, the aircraft began to slowly climb and cross the first houses at about 300 feet above ground. The speed over the ground further reduced to 101 knots. Once the aircraft had climbed to about 900 feet AGL, uh, airspeed began to build up again. The aircraft leveled off at 3,000 feet MSL and thereafter accelerated to normal speeds. The aircraft subsequently positioned for another approach to runway 22 left and landed without further incident about 20 minutes after the go-around. Ground witnesses reported that the aircraft struck its left wing in, onto the runway. It even appeared that the left-hand engine, a CFM-56, made contact with the runway, turned to the left, nearly collided with an antenna, um, and uh, Simon says it appears to be the glide slope antenna for runway 12 and buildings before the aircraft finally managed to climb out to safety. Sources at the airport report the left-hand engine's reverser was damaged. Uh, conditions at the time showed uh, broken ceiling at 1200, light rain. 
and uh, temperature between two and four degrees Celsius. So uh, not bad conditions. Uh, also a follow-on to this. Um, this is from flightglobal.com. Investigators have disclosed that the uh, TAP Air Portugal Airbus involved in a thrust reverser incident just before touchdown in Denmark started veering to the left as the crew attempted to abort the landing. There is no indication, however, that the jet contacted the ground during the event. Okay, that's in uh, in uh, conflict with the uh, previous article that we just read there. Um, Danish Investigation Authority, HCL, says the crew had initiated a go-around. The reason has not been confirmed, but after selecting takeoff power, the aircraft diverged to the left and failed to accelerate or climb in the manner that the pilots expected. Uh, this temporarily made it difficult for the flight crew to maintain control of the aircraft. Yeah, it would. <laughs> um, the crew noticed an indication that the left-hand engine's thrust reverser doors were unlocked. This engine, a CFM International CFM-56, was operating at idle thrust. The flight crew regained control of the aircraft and established a single-engine climb toward a safe altitude. Uh, it adds that the crew declared an emergency during the climb and carried out the necessary checklists couple pictures here that uh, unfortunately I didn't uh, put into our overlays show that the uh, CFM 56 left engine um, looks to me from what I can see in these pictures three of the four thrust reverser doors appear to be open I could see why they might have a little bit of difficulty uh, yeah. controlling the aircraft direction and speed absolutely this is a really odd one, isn't it? It is. So you're thinking, well, did the hard landing and possible contact with the runway of the engine cause this? Or it almost sounds to me like the second article is, uh, that is saying that this happened when the, the engine was idle thrust and before they touched down. And then all of a sudden the doors opened and they initiated a go around because of it, I guess. I don't know. Hard yeah. to tell. Which was cause and which was effect. Yeah. yeah. Chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. Well, Which, yeah. I mean, the the veering left, I would have put down to the fact that they tried to reject the landing with that fault on the left engine present, and that they put on a lot of thrust on the right engine, and that caused the aircraft to veer left. So uh, I'm going. That seems likely to me. I, I I'm trying to work out how they flew down a third of the runway without touching it. Uh, that doesn't yeah. make sense to me at all. Um, the fact that they tried to get airborne um, with one engine in reverse, everything after that makes sense because, of course, if, you, if you're trying to take off again and you've actually got the reverses deployed, they're damn lucky they kept control of the airplane, let alone just all they did was clipper an aerial and a, a building. Right. They, they could easily have uh, lost control of the aircraft completely. And, uh, it, you know, it, it is one, if you've got um, podded engines, it is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you is you get an unexpected reverser deployment because the aircraft can literally, you're out of control. Uh, and in, funnily enough, today's plane tale is about Sweat wing aircraft, the results mm -hmm. of sweat wing aircraft who experience a lot of yaw, and it can be dramatic and deadly. Um, so, uh, 
I think they, from the point that they got Abel and flew away, I think they did a damn good job uh, in controlling this this bad engine, bad left engine, and keeping the aircraft flying. Um, the the preamble to it, I'm wondering what the hell went on during that first bit. Because if they're on the runway for a third of it, that's a very late decision to reject the takeoff and try and get airborne again. If they didn't land, I'm wondering what the hell was going on. Uh, and, and if they had a reverse around on short finals, how did they manage to get all the way down the runway without, have, without the aircraft? They're at VREF, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. And now they've got an engine reverse. They're going to slow down. Just put it on the runway. <laughs> it's right there underneath you. <laughs> I'm almost wondering if they got to the point where they're you know, transitioning to that flare and all of a sudden they have this light that distracts them. They have this message, this warning, and they're thinking, well, uh, you know, like they have to make a split-second decision. Do we continue to land or go around? And maybe they just weren't sure exactly what the status of the aircraft was, so they thought, let's go around, which is probably not the best action no, to take no it, it may it wouldn't have been uh, you know i think both of us would have agreed that once you've got a, a reverser deployed if there's runway underneath you just mm-hmm. put, put it the darn thing down yeah yeah and and you know make the best of it because it's would be being so easy to turn this thing upside down at a low mm-hmm. level and everyone die yeah um, which is a quite likely occurrence if you mm-hmm. get a reverser deployed particularly at low speed when you're very close to the stall anyway so the, yeah, I, I'd love to. I, we need to hear more facts. Right. Really, uh, yeah. I did, in fact, uh, ask um, our friend, uh, your friend, everyone's friend, uh, Captain Al, yeah. to um, uh, I'll comment on this, and he said he hadn't managed to find out any information. Oh, uh, okay. But uh, I'm sure he will in the future, and we'll find out. Well, more. Captain Al, if we, you do, to, yeah, find out something, yeah. please let us know. We'll have you on. Absolutely. And anyone else who's in the 320 world, please. Because exactly. Th- this is a weird incident. It is very, very weird. Why don't you go to E now, Jeff? All right. Uh, I agree. Well, let's uh, move over to uh, E. This one is a little perplexing to me. A lot of these are, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the, kind of the theme here the of the show. Like show. a very perplexing news segment. Uh, the captain of an EasyJet flight from London Luton to Agadir, Morocco? I'm not sure. Agadir? Agadir. Agadir. Uh, somehow managed to dislocate his shoulder as he was sitting in the cockpit while the plane was at 37,000 feet. Okay. The, the pilot was left in so much pain that the first officer had to take over command of the aircraft and make an emergency landing in Faro, Portugal. Uh, the Airbus A320 aircraft landed safely and without further incident less than 20 minutes after it diverted off course, and the captain was transported to a local hospital for treatment. The return flight on Monday had to be canceled and passengers uh, put up in hotels for the night as another captain was found to operate the plane. Citing medical confidentiality, a spokesperson for EasyJet refused to say why the captain became incapacitated, but sources at Faro Airport have said it was due to a shoulder injury incurred during the flight. EasyJet can confirm that flight 2213 from Luton to Agadir diverted to Faro due to the captain requiring medical assistance, uh, the airline said in an emailed statement. The first officer landed the aircraft in line with standard operating procedures, and the captain was met by paramedics on arrival. A group of pilots who work for British Airways, but who operate the same A320 series aircraft, 
as EasyJet are suing their. Okay, well that. I'm sorry, That's I didn't mean to read that one. That was yeah. an, sort of related, I guess. Um, oh wait, maybe it had something to do with the uh, cockpit door surveillance system and turning around and reaching for something, and he dislocated his. I mean. I'm kind of doing a tongue-in-cheek thing here, but I don't <laughs> yes, know. Maybe it, maybe it actually does have something to well, do with that. I, I'm trying to think of all the things you could do from the captain's seat that might require. Which arm did he dislocate? It doesn't say. Oh, okay. Uh, to dislocate an arm. I mean, you do have to twist around in some awkward positions. Uh, and the worst is actually going left around your seat and then back to get into the document um cupboard there's a kind of a uh, you know you lift up a, a part of the side of the um, cockpit and there's a, a space in there where all the heavy manuals and once you grab one of those heavy manuals if you have to try and lift it out you've really got to twist your arm in an awkward position to get it out in front of you um, there are a few things like that now they may not even have manuals on board most of us don't most of us have uh, EFBs, but uh, perhaps there was a document in there like, I don't know, I can't think of one right now that's not in your EFB, but uh, fact is that there are things you might need to do uh, that require you to reach and twist, and the body is a strange thing, I know, you know, you can, mm -hmm. You can shake hands with someone and their shoulder can pop out like, mm -hmm. like my old greengrocer when I was a kid. It used to be his party trick, you know, you'd shake hands with him. His arm would dislocate. Oh. But <laughs> I'm not suggesting this, Blake. <laughs> it used to freak us out as kids, you know, school kids, didn't they? Freak me out as an adult. <laughs> Some people have very yeah, loose dear. ligaments in but, their uh, shoulders. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, it, it could have been something odd that he had to twist around for. But uh, mm. and, and it just goes on to emphasize our vehement... Um, oppose it, uh, um, opposition to single pilot operations because exactly. you know if you could just reach around the cockpit and dislocate, dislocate your arm if there hadn't been a first officer there they'd have been in dire straits i hall boxes says the efb was 100 oh, percent loaded the uh, i hall so boxes heavy. says maybe the efb the electronic flight bag was 100 percent loaded <clears throat> extra heavy extra heavy okay <laughs> I don't okay. <laughs> think little electronic bits um, weigh that much, but okay. Whatever I, you think. Yeah, I've the only it. thing that I could figure out, I've, and I've never even been in the cockpit of an Airbus, so I don't know, but uh, the only thing I could figure out is maybe he was trying to get out of the seat for something mm -hmm. and kind of got tangled up as he was getting out of the seat. You know, could be. Or like stumbled a little bit and then caught yeah, himself. Yeah, caught himself with his arm. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? I was thinking something like uh, they were. Never mind. <laughs> no, just, I have uh, no idea what you're referring to. Perhaps uh, you'd explain in detail. No, I, I decided, <laughs> I, I, I decided that uh, that wasn't a good direction to go. So. Restrain yourself. Restrain yeah. yourself. Yes. Very wise, Captain. Yeah. Um, as as Matt uh, Smith would say, uh, if I can find it. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Yes. All right. Why don't uh -oh. we skip? Why don't we skip F and go on to G? Okay, let's do that. Uh, we're going to skip F and go to G. We have a couple of incidents here involving DC threes in Latin America, and uh, let's see. I'm going to play a couple of videos and add to stream. Here we go. Here's the first one. I've turned the sound down so we can talk about it. Here's a DC three. Is it? I think it landing. 
And yeah. it, uh, oh, uh, looks like something happens to the left main. Oh, that's when they throw the anchor out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they threw it out. Uh, they threw the anchor out, yeah. Oh, they should throw it like That's out perfectly normal directly it? behind the airplane, not off to the side. <laughs> so here's a picture. And that's, of- that's what all DC-3s look like. So don't worry about that. They all look like that. Um, They've all got well, those newfangled propellers. I was going to say, those are the, that's the high-speed <laughs> yes. high propeller model. Propellers were going way too fast. And they exactly. Look how pointy that nose is. It's a real high-speed airplane. I think that uh, the propellers bent in that manner would indicate that the air, the uh, airplane, well, the engines were producing thrust when it when it hit yeah. the ground. Uh, let's see. I gotta go ahead and start playing again. I just paused it for a moment so we could inspect the uh, very bad condition of this airplane. Um, okay. Well, there it is on its side. Uh, it's a. Uh, let's see. An Ali Alianza. Uh, there it is before it uh, had its little incident. Alianza Aerolinius Andinas uh, was seriously damaged when it left the runway on landing. According to Colombian weekly news magazine Semana, uh, the 79 year old DC 3 registered HK5016 was carrying six passengers and crew from Enrida to San Felipe, a distance of around 150 miles. San Felipe is a remote region around five, well, we can, yeah, can we go ahead and remove that? There we go, thanks. A remote region around 500 miles from Colombia's capital, Bogota, and near the border with Venezuela and Brazil, the region relies heavily on air transport for both passenger and cargo flights. the video post uh, footage posted to Twitter. <laughs> the video postage, uh, the video footage posted to Twitter shows the aircraft suddenly turning sharply left and off the runway, and then it goes severely nose down on the side of the runway, almost tipping over. Um, let's see. Initially, let's see. Semana, uh, the news um, source, says that the preliminary report from the Civil Aviation Authority points to a possible failure in one of the aircraft's tires, which could have deflated or exploded during landing. Um, A department official named as Nader Rentaria is quoted as saying, initially they tell me it was due to a puncture, but it's not entirely clear what happened. Um, So uh, we have a DC-3 co-pilot co-pilot with us has experience with the uh, the airplane and uh, flies the Betsy's biscuit bomber um, out in uh, Paso Robles uh, California and maybe you can shed some light on this based on the video evidence that we have uh, yeah the only thing that stood out to me is and it's kind of hard to tell because of the the dust um, and the engines but it you know, it looks like he is still going along at a at a pretty good clip when the tail comes down and the tail kind of bounces a little bit. So that would, uh, I, you know, my uh, gut reaction to that would be that that seems uh, like possibly a reaction to them realizing something was wrong uh, and trying to get the tail down and get the airplane uh, stopped as fast as possible. Um. You know, one of the unique things about these airplanes is it's got the, and we'll see it also in the next clip, but it's with it being a twin engine airplane, a tailwheel airplane, and um, a conventional tailed airplane, 
you've kind of got this period of time where you have to be real careful about directional control. You know, when you start, when you start the takeoff and right as you're ending the landing and you have the tailwheel on the ground, the tailwheel is locked. And so that tailwheel helps give you directional control. And once you're up and moving and you've got lots of airflow over the rudder, um, you've got good directional control from the rudder. But, you know, there's this little period of time where you got to be kind of careful as you slow down um, that because the slipstream of the propellers is not going over your rudder, um, you kind of lose a significant amount of effectiveness. And so that's that's kind of one of the critical periods of flying these airplanes is when you've got them on the ground and you're slowing down before you put the tail down um, or on takeoff, you know, before you uh, put the tail up. And so, I, you know, because of that, if it seems reasonable to me that if they did have a an issue with a tire or a wheel or something, um, I, I think that putting the putting the tail down sooner than possible might uh, might be a reasonable reaction. So mm-hmm. that, that was kind of my view of that one. And I couldn't, you know, from that video, was that a takeoff or a landing? It was a landing. Okay. That's what I assumed. At least everything I've read has said it was a landing. Okay. All right. Well, interesting. Um, well, let's not just stop with one DC-3 accident. Let's uh, take a look at another one. Um. This accident uh, happened um, about five days after the one that we just looked at. And uh, it looks like this one is a takeoff incident and looks like it's not flying fast enough as it uh, crashes. Um, This uh, was a Basler BT-67. I think the other one was too, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, The aircraft belongs... Well, I mean, this bloke wasn't on the runway. Yeah, I can't tell... uh, it kind of looked like he was on in the grass. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Well, I can't. Is he on the grass or is he just? So, so the article said that they were actually landing. So this okay. was going to be a fuel stop for them, and they were actually oh. landing, um, and lost control of the airplane, and that's why it went off the runway. Um, oh. And then you see some of these photos. The oh wow, ugly extreme uh, situation that they got themselves into. Wow. Mm. Okay, this is the police. Th- those conversions are not cheap. What are these aircraft worth when they've been? M- millions. Oh, um, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so the, that was one thing I was going to mention. Um, the first, man, I, I went back and looked because I didn't see anything about the first one being a Basler airplane. There was a handful of people uh, that used to do these turbine conversions and I'm not sure if the first one was a, a Basler airplane okay. or not. Um, but the second one uh, is a Basler. The Basler calls them BT-67s. And that's not just a re-engineering of the airplane, of the airframe. They basically rebuild the entire airplane. And they put a plug in it and make it a little bit longer, the fuselage, and make it a little bit longer. And so oh, the, the plugs to let the water out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a tropical... So- uh, climate. <laughs> yeah. A lot of water. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so this is not, you know, so this airplane, this airframe may have been built in the forties, but, uh, if it's a Basler airframe, it has had a significant rebuild to basically like new condition, I would say in the past 20 or 30 years. And like you said, Nick, I mean, it's, I, man, I used to know how much they cost. I think they're on the order of four or $5 million. Um, right. So, I mean, they're sweet airplanes where they'd be converted, and you would hope that they would go on for another 
40 years, wouldn't you? Unless you do mm -hmm. some, like, something like this to them. Right. Right. <laughs> wow, that's so sad, watching them pancake down. But, I mean, I guess that's quite a survivable uh, accident. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that, too. You know, they kind of landed amidst some, like, trees and shrubbery, and I wondered, you know, what, how much of that had an effect on the survivability of it. But uh, mm. it really is kind of curious what they were what they were doing, you know, um, like I said, so when I started flying that airplane a little bit, one of the things I had trouble with is, um, like I was mentioning a moment ago there, there's kind of this really, um, interesting threshold where you want to get the tail up and get the airplane flying level as soon as possible because it is such a big airplane. So, you know, there is a lot of drag and, uh, other things associated with having the tail down and, you know, you're pulling basically that 96 foot wing through the air at a super high angle of attack. So you're going to get the tail up high, but, uh, I've gotten in trouble in a couple instances of as soon as you give it the power pop, you know, popping the tail up off the ground because the rudder, the elevators are in the slip slipstream of the engines. So you have rudder authority very quickly as soon as you give the airplane power. So you can get the tail off the ground and, um, and start going down the runway with very little um, rudder effectiveness. And the same thing could happen on landing. And, um, it, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a mistake that a lot of people can... It's an easily made mistake, and it seems reasonably forgivable. It looks like, I don't know what happened with these guys, but they went off the runway. Um, the weirder part to me is you can see in some of those pictures that they grabbed at the end, um, they're they're rolling at a reasonable clip. So at some point they must've initiated a go around, but they never do bring the tail back up. They basically fly off the ground in a three point attitude. Uh, there's videos as the air or there's um, still frames grabbed from some of those. So like that one right there uh, of the airplane with the tailwheel on the ground and then the, the yeah. mains, a number of feet off the ground. Um, that, that would be a, probably a, a reaction to the, fact that the trees are just about to arrive rather than flying off in a controlled manner yeah. just holding back and hoping for the best wouldn't it nick I, yeah i think so you know the the problem is like you like you see that the airplane will fly at such a low for a bit <laughs> rate of speed <laughs> yes. yeah until it doesn't yeah, and you can see and it, and it actually <laughs> lost an it lost an elevator you can see in that picture right there the left elevator got hung up on a fence as they were going over it and it ripped the elevator off the yeah. airplane mm. um so it's just, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I don't know. I've never flown a turboprop goon, but, um, I would think with reverse and everything, you, you'd still be able to get it stopped reasonably well. Um, so I'm not quite sure what caused them to, uh, feel like they needed to go around. Uh, but I hall boxes a makes a good point here though. It looks like that they exceeded the angle of dangle. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and you know, we saw something similar to that, um, or a result similar to that, uh, three or four years ago, maybe with that, uh, C 47 down in Texas that the CAF operated, it was on a takeoff, but it was a, it was a similar situation where, um, they were rolling down the runway and they got the tail. They didn't get the tail all the way up into a level, you know, acceleration attitude. And so the airplane kind of came off the ground in this tail low 
uh, low speed scenario and kind of had the same, almost the same exact reaction where it kind of rolled to the left and kind of did this getting crash alongside the runway. So yeah, unfortunate to see again. Yeah. We all think of them as, as fantastic airplanes. Uh, but you know, they don't look, they look like they're a handful at times, Nick. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, you know, I think what gets a lot of people is it is just, is just that they fly differently than, um, a lot of things that most people are used to flying. You know, a lot of times, uh, and I've mentioned that before too, with my experience, a lot of times guys will, um, be coming into the airplane from, <clears throat> in my case, it's all light GA flying and then you get in the airplane and it has a few unique characteristics that are kind of averse to what I'm used to. Same thing with guys, um, you know, like with your guys' experience, um, you know, coming in from a large, uh, jet airplane with a nose wheel scenario, um, 90% of all of the, um, operations and and situations that you're going to get into are going to be handled similarly but there's just a couple of little gotchas that you got to be ready for hmm. wow very interesting hopefully that. we'll learn more about what what caused the uh incidents uh, both of these incidents but uh glad we had nick camacho here to kind of help us analyze uh, before we go to the getting to know us segment, I think we'll cover this last item in our news uh, for today. Anyway, we're going to move some of the news items that we had uh, thought about talking about today uh, to the next show. But this one's an interesting one, H. Um, and I believe we have an overlay, uh, Liz. <laughs> Oops, I didn't do that very well, did I? Yeah. Hi. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is an ACARS message um, that says uh, dispatch message from dispatch uh, to another um, Alaska Air aircraft. Uh, you are due into Juneau approximately the same time as Flight 62. You may need to hold. He is declaring an emergency. And then the dispatcher includes this message that he received from Flight 62. It says, Flight 62, we have lost all radios due to FO vomiting on center panel. Squawking 7600 going to shoot RNAV RNP-M for runway 8 via Cushy or Cushy. Um, so I'm thinking that could not have been a very pleasant situation in the cockpit of that aircraft. No, I, I'm sort of surprised the second message didn't say going to shoot the FO. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the part of the message that we didn't include. It said, after I shoot the RNAV, we're going to shoot the FO. <laughs> but I thought it was pretty, uh, you know, heads up for the uh, captain, I'm assuming, uh, to send the ACARS message. Although we're assuming it was a captain, perhaps somebody did mention Hillel, I think. Hello. Uh, I, th I think he's in the bathroom. He can't hear me now. Uh, he mentioned on one of the social medias uh, that uh, the ACARS was probably in that center panel. Uh, and uh, somebody had to type this ACARS message amongst all the, all the vomit. But I'm thinking maybe the captain said, you type in <laughs> on the ACARS message to dispatch. That. I'm not going to touch that. Just tell them we're going to shoot the RNAV to uh, runway eight. Anyway, 
thought that was a interesting little slice of uh, airline operations yeah, out there. That the, the joy, the joys of being an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen too often, thank God. Right? Uh, yep. Yeah. All right. Not too often. Uh, or maybe I noticed Jeff, you didn't mention the other possibility. Oh, what's the other possibility? Which was uh, the captain being responsible for it not taking accountability for his actions. Oh, you mean maybe he just blamed it on the FO and maybe it was yeah. the captain that actually yeah. threw up? Hmm. I don't like yeah, that idea would, at all. He wouldn't mind typing in his own vomit, <laughs> would he? <laughs> That's true. Hey, this doesn't smell that bad. <laughs> all right. It's now time for Getting to Know Us segment. And... That's the segment of the show where we kind of get all caught up with what has been happening between those of us on the show right now. And uh, let's see, Nick Camacho, how have you been, sir? Uh, been pretty good. Uh, been a little limited in what I could do uh, aviation-wise the last week or so because of the springtime wind situation mm-hmm. uh, in Kansas. Um, what? It gets windy in Kansas? Yeah, uh, I did get to meet up with Jeff for lunch last week, so that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we talked about that actually on the on the last show. You weren't able to join us, but uh, yeah, we yeah. talked about the uh, lunch again. He picked me up, uh, picked Brent uh, Heron and I, my first officer, and I up from the hotel and took us again to the uh, really good barbecue place, Delano Barbecue. And uh, in fact, Liz asked if um, we, if you just stayed outside, you know, if you just picked us up and took us over there and dropped you off because the way I kind of presented it, I didn't mention <laughs> uh, yeah. that you actually had Your lunch driver. with us too. Yeah, I said, yeah, we let him. We took pity on Nick and I was, I was a little worried that. I was a little worried that I I may have kind of uh, that Jeff may have started uh, feeling a little left out because I'm getting to know Brent pretty well. I've gone to lunch with him four or five times now. So this time I yeah. pulled up to the hotel and Brent walked right out and hopped in the car and we started chatting. And Jeff showed up a, a minute or two later, looking around everywhere, thinking, "Oh man, what has my fo done?" And uh, <laughs> and then looked in the car and saw us in there. He's like, "Oh." I didn't. Uh, yeah, didn't honestly, I, I saw <laughs> I saw Nick out there um, in the you know the in the driver's position. Brent was already in the back seat of the the back cab of the uh, of the the car, and um, yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. I thought, well, that's kind of unusual because Brent's usually down a couple of minutes before I get down, and I'm thinking I'm looking all around like where where is he? <laughs> and I walked out to let nick know that brent isn't down yet and i opened up the door and go oh <laughs> you're already in here <laughs> you know i i was uh in fact i may have even mentioned it on the on the last show or maybe privately i was talking with liz about this that, that you guys are having a great conversation about ga and um home builds and ultralights and engines mm-hmm. and stuff like that and was like out of my area of experience Your wheelhouse yeah my wheelhouse yeah thanks liz yeah and uh and i oh, i loved it i actually got a chance to eat instead of talk so i enjoyed <laughs> that i i loved it yep yep uh, it was a lot of fun i always i always obviously enjoy seeing you and going to lunch with you but uh yeah i i like brent quite a bit as well i understand why you always want to fly with him i understand that you you like him more than me but that's okay i, I can accept <laughs> that <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I've got, uh, I do have a couple of things coming up. I'm, uh, going to travel for work pretty soon. So I'm going to head back out to, uh, California, um, in the near term. And then in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks after that, I'm actually going to go back out to California 
Uh, there's a little airport called Columbia, uh, kind of in the foothills of the Sierras up by Sacramento. Um, and they're kind of renowned for their uh, grass runway and campground area. And they host a lot of uh, type club events, right? Which is like uh, airplane type specific groups. And uh, the, Luscom, the Continental Luscom Association, which I've been a part of for, I guess, more than a decade now, um, has their flying out there every spring um and it's been canceled the last couple of years because of covid so i think it's uh the 21st and 20th and 21st i think or something like that of may it's basically the friday and saturday friday through sunday of uh of may and we'll um be getting a bunch of luscombs out there and a few other little airplanes and um having a lot of fun so if anybody's in the northern california area looking for a fun and entertaining weekend activity. Um, that's something you should look into. APG meetup. Yeah, we could do that. Absolutely. <laughs> and Nick will be your host. <laughs> All right. So Jeff, 10 minutes to plane tail, 10 minutes to the plane tail. All right. Thank you, Liz. Uh, let's continue with uh, Captain Nick. How have you been, sir? Uh, well, uh, uh, doing <laughs> oh, well. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> 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 Wish I could say I was 100. percent Sorry, you know, I asked. <laughs> yeah, uh, my uh, my back has started playing up again, and I don't know why. I haven't really done much to it, but uh, it's decided that spring is the time when it's going to get all angry. So I was at the physio today. Uh, geez, they're not cheap. Anyway, uh, I've had lots of treatment, and it's feeling okay-ish. But uh, the bowling season started, so. That, uh, you know, is going to be a shame because uh, it rather a pity. Is that why your I back is? Uh... No, it was happening before I oh, started okay. bowling. Bowling usually actually strengthens it because it's quite a good core strengthening exercise. A lot of, a lot of bending involved. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, the weather's been lovely. So I've enjoyed uh, what little bowling I've managed to fit in. And uh, I've got some competitions coming up, so that'll be good. Uh, and other than that, my darling wife is progressing with her new knee, uh, albeit slowly. So, uh, the, you know, there's still a fair amount of extra work in the house and still not much time to do anything else, I'm afraid. But, you know, we're getting on all right. Thanks. Are you uh, still I, uh, getting caught up with the ironing? Uh, <laughs> I Yes, I did. Actually, I, I'm, I've got to finish that film. I get the film out of the camera because I did some extreme ironing just the other day oh, uh, I, look forward I, to that. I meant to have it ready for the show but unfortunately the gopro door stuck but i'll uh, i'll get it out of the gopro and uh, i'll have it ready for the next show oh i can't wait I, yeah i i think we all know what really happened here nick we can see through the facade oh really um, oh yeah after your wife taking care of you for 40 years or 35 years or whatever it's been you had to take care of her for the last three or four weeks and you're like i, I don't like this I don't it's like broken my back. Let's, yes. turn, let's turn the tables back around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, no, you. There is an element of truth there, Nick. <laughs> yeah, is uh, is physio a general doctor or like a chiropractor? What is that? It's a specialist of uh, physiotherapist. Uh, this okay. particular lady has uh, sports injuries in particular. Uh, okay. But, but uh, a chiropractor is a, a different thing over here. 
Um, and physios can be private or in the National Health Service. So uh, I've gone to the a last uh, lady in the village uh, who we've been using off and on for years. So uh, she she knows as well. Does Nick want to talk about last week's cover art? Do you want to talk about the cover art from uh, last week, Captain Nick? Oh, yeah. You gave me, I forget what the possible uh, titles were, but they were just appalling. I, and I tell you what, <laughs> I spent, I spent okay. uh, eight hours working on a possible um, cover. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I just threw it away in a fit of pique because I just oh, couldn't no. get it right. And I I did this in like quarter of an hour, so uh, no, a little bit more. Um, we've got a uh, an RV because we know Mister RV is going to have one. There he is in the front. <laughs> there I up. am. Not not driving it, which is why it's going off the road. Um, and, oh, uh, you have to you have to stay behind the wheel. Uh. Yeah, well, that's what that autopilot light in the front is doing. Is <laughs> Indicating the autopilot's gone off. We've got a little bit of green stripey um, uh, livery, I guess, uh-huh. on the roof. Uh, a nice big satellite dish. Oh, I uh, get it. Yeah, yeah. And okay. um, of course, we're talking about the whales on the bus go round and round. So there's mm-hmm. lovely warnings around the rotating yes. wheels. Danger. But uh, it includes a little bit of. Uh, what did we call that kind of line? Cheat lines? Cheat lines, yes. Yeah, it's got a few cheat lines down the Acme Airlines logo on the side. Mm-hmm. And the best I could do. So uh, I do like can that. I have a Maybe decent... I'll do that with my RV, have it painted like that. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Absolutely, yes. Uh, may I have a decent title this time, please, folks? <laughs> I thought... I thought it was a good title, and I, I love the. I, I asked Liz if there's if there's anything she wanted me to add to the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> I put a little light there, or I thought mm-hmm. perhaps she could think up something. And she came back and said, "Yeah, put put Steph jumping out of an airplane behind and doing this, and another <laughs> couple. I have Twin Otter in there and do this, and and I'm going. How hard ah! could that be?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, we oh, left well, it as I tried. was. Wow. And, and you did have the uh, dish, although that's not quite the Starlink dish on, on top there. But no, no, it, that's it a gets, much more sophisticated Starlink yeah, dish and you, much you larger. will get with your RV. That's Starlink Plus. Uh, I, that one looks like it came out of Jodrell Bank or somewhere. Well, uh, in our live audience here, uh, Greg Peterson says he read an article the, this morning that said that Delta, also known as Acme, <laughs> well, shouldn't say that, uh, has no. been working with Starlink for in-flight internet access. Huh. Interesting. Well, maybe get an employee okay. discount. Yeah, maybe well, I'll get an the employee rate, discount. the rate they're falling out of the sky, you're just going to end up <laughs> flying into them anyway. So. That's true. Yeah. It's actually not true. Okay. Um, very good. Anything else, uh, what have Nick? What you been doing? Nope. Okay. Uh, what have I been doing, Liz? Well, singing and singing thanks and for singing. asking. Uh, last week we recorded on Thursday. I just returned from a three-day trip earlier in the week. I told you I had nothing scheduled for this week, but I anticipated picking something up, and and I did, sort of. Um, I, I kind of screwed <laughs> up um, picking up 
flying this week, and apparently I'm flying uh, tonight. Uh, you know how I enjoy flying at night. I'm flying to uh, White Plains. I'm getting in very late, uh, just before midnight, and then out uh, again tomorrow. So not long enough for any kind of a meetup or anything, just long enough for me to sleep and eat. Aren't and you going to Wichita tomorrow? I am going to Wichita, Liz, except that I'm not going to be there very long. I'm going uh, from White Plains to Atlanta and then Wichita and back. Hopefully I'll get into Wichita and out of Wichita before that weather that's supposed to be coming in tomorrow night. Right, Nick? Nick's going to arrange Yeah, we've that. got a couple of different lines coming through. Here. Yeah, a couple different things. lines coming. And um, can you do something about that? Like, like, hold <laughs> yeah, off. You can, you can move to fake. Arkansas. Yeah. I... I would. Uh, I need to make uh, a point here, uh, and and I never discussed this on the show, but we were uh, Nick Camacho and I had a uh, discussion about the fact that the river that runs through. Well, I guess it starts in the Rockies somewhere, um, and then it goes flows through uh, Kansas before it goes into Arkansas. But in Kansas, the river that is named for, uh, well, we uh, most people call it Arcan- Arkansas. Uh, what do you call the uh, river there in uh, Kansas? You, you said it right. You said it right Arkansas. the first time. And I said, Nick, Arkansas. Captain Nick would be very, very happy to hear that. Yeah, the Arkansas Absolutely. River. Absolutely, yeah. So they named the river right. They mm-hmm. just named the rest of it wrong. State wrong, yeah. I guess the state of Arkansas, they thought that Arkansas sounds too much like Kansas. So they said, we need to change the pronunciation uh, to but Arkansas. But it's Arkansas, not their Kansas. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And whose river is it? I don't know, because it runs through several states. But you did a lot of singing last week. Oh, yes, I did a lot of singing. Thank you, Liz. She's getting me back on track. I did a lot of singing. It was a (laughs) holy week. Uh, It was Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday for the Vigil Mass, Easter Sunday, singing in a couple of masses. So I was singing my heart out over the weekend and uh, had not flown anything until today and tomorrow. So... I'll let you know how that all goes uh, on the next show. And then um, I have vacation starting on Saturday through the 1st of May. So I don't think I'm going to be going anyplace. I have a lot of things that um, I have neglected to do, so I need to catch up on. So it'll be more of a staycation for me. And uh, that's it. Brilliant. Well done, sir. Do you have any coffee fund? Uh, coffee fund, yes, I do, Liz. Thank you. I'm so glad that she's there giving me direction. Otherwise, I'd just be a lump of whatever. Here we go. Coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the coffee fund. That's your way, dear listeners, to support the show in a financial way. And we call it the Coffee Bar Club or the Coffee Fund Cadre. And a couple of different ways to become a member of said group. And that is, uh, well, the first one is the old-fashioned original, the OG, the PayPal uh, method of contributing. And since the last episode, we have three that took advantage of that. We have Chris Randall and Jenny from Rome, who uh, have recurrent contributions going on with the Coffee Fund Classic method. And then Donna Rose, who I saw 
last week in White Plains, uh, gave a very generous contribution. Thank you, Donna. And uh, let's see, the other way to participate in the Coffee Fund Cadre is to become a patron of the show. And since the last episode, no new patrons, but that's an option for if you want to become a patron of the show. And uh, you can learn about these two methods by heading over to our wonderful website, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Well, it was great getting all caught up with everybody, and now it's time for us to go directly to this week's installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, and the title this week, The Fall of American One. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The Fall of American One. The skyscraper towers of Lower Manhattan glittered in the bright winter's sun as Captain James Heist taxied his shining Boeing 707 out to the runway at New York side, a wild airport. Huge crowds had already formed beneath those very towers, for in a few hours... Millions of New Yorkers would roar in admiration for astronaut John H. Glenn Jr., back from outer space and the hero of a ticker tape parade. But as those crowds cheered, throwing a snowstorm of paper down onto the first American to fly into outer space, 3,474 tons to be exact, the people of America were about to suffer a grim reminder that they could conquer space but never fate. The aircraft was named Flagship District of Columbia and was only the 12th Boeing 707 ever to be made. It was delivered to American Airlines in February 1959, so at the time America was taking its first steps into the void of outer space, it was a mere three years old. It hadn't been long out of its periodic inspection, and with less than 8,000 hours on the airframe, November 7506 Alpha was expected to have a long and productive life ahead of it, a wish that would be dashed in a few short minutes. To explain, I'm going to delve a little into sweatwing aerodynamics, and considering that this was fairly early in the average pilot's understanding of big jet designs, it was still something that wasn't necessarily second nature to many. Most of the tomes that would grace airline pilots' bookshelves, like D.P. Davies handling the big jets, were still a decade or more away. This new generation of jet airliner employed highly swept wings, which weren't required with slower prop-driven aircraft. Jets could drive those big machines right up to the speed of sound, so high degrees of sweep were necessary to delay the drag rise that comes from compressibility effects. An effect that would occur at point 0.7 Mach on a straight wing could be delayed to over 0.9 Mach on a swept wing. Along with the advantages came several problems with stability. 
A swept wing is prone to tip stalling, which can deny aileron effectiveness and move the centre of pressure forwards, causing a pitch-up, exacerbating the stall. In yaw, there's a drastic change in projected span and effective sweep, which leads to a strong rolling effect. As Davies put it, this marked roll with yawing is very significant in terms of flying qualities. Another factor is oscillatory stability, termed a Dutch roll. I've mentioned this before, but it's a combination of yawing and rolling motions with a continuous reversing action in roll that can become divergent. Davies' description of how to recover from Dutch roll is a great piece of practical flying advice. I love it. The first thing you do is nothing. Repeat, nothing. Just watch the rolling motion and fix the pattern in your mind. Then, when you're good and ready, give one firm but gentle correction on the aileron control against the upcoming wing. Don't hold it on too long, just in and out, or you'll spoil the effect. You will be left with a residual wiggle, which you can take out in your own time. An aircraft prone to Dutch roll with only a manual rudder would suffer more since when winged down the weight of the rudder would deflect it into the direction of the roll reducing the effective fin and rudder area which makes divergence more likely. In order to counter this and for several other reasons designers of the 707 provided a hydraulic boost system to assist the pilot to move the rudder and your dampers to augment lateral stability and reduce Dutch roll. Both of these systems would come under suspicion when examining the fate of American 1. Let me first take you back to American Airlines Flight 514, the flagship Connecticut. American had purchased a number of Boeing 707s and put them into service in 1959, and it was eight months later when Flight 514 took off from New York's Idlewild Airport for a training flight. On board were just five crew members, a captain who was acting as an instructor with two other captains being trained, and an instructor flight engineer with a trainee flight engineer. They had taken off and completed their upper air work without incident before heading to the Grumman Aircraft Corporation field at Calverton, in the afternoon in order to practice some circuit work. They completed some full-stop landings, crosswind landings and engine-out approaches and were on base for another approach, having somewhat unusually completed this circuit with the gear down. Whilst downwind, they had throttled back the two engines on the right wing in order to complete a two-engine approach. But whilst on the base leg, the aircraft was pushed over and rolled left into a turn onto finals. At this point, the 707 yawed rapidly right to as much as 17 degrees, well beyond that which can be controlled by full lateral control. The pilots failed to recognise or counter the yaw, which rapidly resulted in a roll to 90 degrees right with the right yaw causing a nose-down pitch of 30 degrees. The roll rate reached 40 degrees a second, and as the aircraft passed through the inverted position, the two idling engines were brought to full power. Descending fast, 
They managed to roll the doomed 707 to wings level, but they hit the ground before a recovery could be made. All five crew members perished in what was the very first crash of a Boeing 707 aircraft. The Civil Aeronautics Board concluded that during the asymmetric power approach, left rudder should have been used to counter the power from the live engines to compensate for the unbalanced thrust. With your angles of over 10 degrees, rudder effectiveness of the 707 deteriorated rapidly, resulting in a loss of directional control. Boeing advised that in this case, all engines should be reduced to idle and then advanced together. The yaw induced a rapid roll that the crew failed to counter. As a result of this aircraft loss, the FAA decided to discontinue the requirement to make actual landings with simulated failures of both power units on one wing for training, type rating and proficiency checks. Eighteen months later, American 1502 in flagship Oklahoma also departed from Idlewild into clear skies on another training flight with six on board. Fifty-seven minutes after takeoff, they made their last radio call and eyewitnesses reported seeing the aircraft doing multiple rolls as it descended down towards Napig Beach before impacting the shallow waters there, killing all on board. What caused the crew to lose control was never fully established. The inquiries surmised that it could have resulted from practice engine shutdowns or perhaps a training manoeuvre called a canyon approach, which involved configuring the aircraft with 30 degrees of flap and gear and then flying a fast descending turn, levelling off and then climbing away again, during which the instructor would fail an engine. Regardless, American had lost their second 707. It was March the 1st, 1962, when John Glenn was preparing for his well-deserved celebration in New York, and when American 1 took off from Ida Wild bound for Los Angeles. The flagship District of Columbia was flying American's flagship route, but for the third time in three years from the very same airport, American Airlines were about to suffer another tragedy that would be the nation's worst single aircraft disaster to date. The 707 had been given a clearance to depart from runway 31 left at Idlewild, an airport we now know as JFK, and as they taxied out, they prepared for a routing that would require them to fly a 180-degree left turn immediately after takeoff to avoid the city and other airports in the area. At 10.07 in the morning, they became airborne and began a gentle left turn at 100 feet as they passed taxiway Alpha Alpha. They steadied up on a heading of 290 before switching to departure control and, taking radar vectors, they started a second left turn whilst continuing to climb. As the crew rolled on the bank, it failed to stop at anything like a normal amount, and within a few seconds they had passed 90 degrees of bank. 
those on the stricken aircraft, were the only witnesses as to exactly what happened, as the roll continued until the aircraft was inverted at only 1,600 feet. Then the nose dropped, and American One plunged earthwards in a near-vertical dive. The crew of eight and the 87 passengers had little time to contemplate their fate before their lives were ended in the shallow waters of Pumpkin Patch Channel of Jamaica Bay, about three miles from the control tower, one minute and 49 seconds after takeoff. A brackish plume of water marked the spot, and then the debris and spilt fuel soon ignited into a huge plume of fire and smoke. The Mohawk Airlines aircraft that took off immediately behind were subjected to the ghastly view of the aircraft plunging into the bay. Triumph and tragedy in New York. Just an hour before the arrival of astronaut John Glenn's plane, a jetliner crashes on takeoff from a nearby airport, killing all 95 aboard. Eyewitnesses say that the giant plane had climbed to about 700 feet and had started to bank to the left when it suddenly nosed down and plunged vertically into Jamaica Bay. So great was the force of the crash that a great spout of water shot 200 feet into the sky. It was the greatest single-plane disaster in the nation's history. The crash came scant minutes after takeoff before the pilot could even report his departure time. It was a sunny, crystal-clear morning with unlimited visibility. The flight recording tape is the only hope that some answer may be found to the mysterious plunge. 300 policemen with firefighters and coast guards were mobilised to search for survivors, but in the words of one patrolman, there was no one to rescue. Their efforts gave way to recovery, with the searchers carrying ashore pitiful scraps of human possessions sodden from the dirty waters of the plane's grave. Few bodies were recovered intact, the aircraft had shattered into thousands of fragments on impact and most lay embedded in the black mud beneath the shallow waters. At the time, President Kennedy called on the Federal Aviation Agency to do all it could to prevent a repetition. He was said to be deeply affected by the crash. The head of the FAA said that the President has instructed us to do everything within our power to prevent a recurrence. The efforts made to discover the reason for the loss of control were phenomenal and painstakingly detailed, but despite all the resources that were used, it still took 10 months for the Civil Aeronautics Board to publish their findings. Even then, they were only able to discover a probable cause, but this centred around the likelihood of a rudder control system malfunction. It was believed that a fault activated the rudder boost, which caused a yaw, inducing sideslip and roll, leading to a loss of control from which recovery was not effective. The 707's flight data trace, scratched onto a strip of aluminium foil, showed that when starting the second left turn, it was performed at an angle of 22 degrees, with an airspeed of 50 to 60 knots above the stalling speed at 920 feet. At the same time, the crew were retracting the flaps from 20 to 0, which took 12 seconds, 
and ended at 1,350 feet and an airspeed of 200 knots. A few seconds later, several readings became erratic, which could be attributed to a left side slip, followed by an increase in G from 1 to 1.8. Airspeed and altitude recordings then dropped abruptly, indicating a pronounced side slip, and increased drag from prolonged buffeting. Impact occurred 12 seconds later. When the engines were examined, they were found to be at flight idle when the crash occurred. A large effort was put into recovering and examining the flight control components, but there was nothing to explain the aircraft's behaviour until the wiring leading to the rudder servo was disassembled and the protective sleeving covering the wire uncovered. The brown and orange wires were found to be severed beneath the insulation, with the blue wire hanging on by a thread. In addition, telltale marks were found on and around connections. The same marks were found on eight spare units in American stock, one of which still bore the manufacturer's seal. The FAA made an examination at the manufacturer's plant where a further six unsatisfactory units were found. The FAA inspectors discovered that the damage had occurred as a result of improper use of tweezers when tying the wire bundles to the motor housing. Bench tests of the damaged component investigated the result of the cut live wire making contact with the brown signal lead, it caused a yaw damper hardover. Although flight tests proved the situation recoverable with sufficient aileron applied to stop the roll at 56 degrees angle of bank. Other studies and flight tests by Boeing involved many other possible causes such as a jammed control wheel, aileron, spoiler, stall during flap retraction, engine failure, distraction, incapacitation and a myriad of others. An entire flight test program known as Project Race was ordered by the FAA and slowly all the other theories for the crash were eliminated. When human factors were considered, the ability of the project pilots to correct from a rudder boost hardover revealed that a line crew might well have acted too late to overcome the fault. To quote the report, Tests are obviously planned manoeuvres under which conditions the pilot is not confronted with the necessity of analysing the malfunction, deciding what corrective action he will take and experimenting to produce the desired results. In addition, there were several distracting influences such as the departure procedures, radio communications, flap retraction and such. The conclusion was that it was unreasonable to expect the crew of Flight 1 to have started corrective actions in time to prevent the loss of control, a conclusion borne out by several recorded instances of your damper malfunctions. The report, of course, did little to assuage the distress of those who were affected by the tragedy. The disaster occurred on a beautiful sunny morning with clear blue skies, the first fair day after almost a week of rain and fog that had delayed or cancelled hundreds of flights, and on a day of celebration. As one reporter put it, 
As searchers poked through the shallow waters, the broken bits of the jetliner rose from the inlet in grim reminder that man may conquer space, but never circumstance. The flight number is still used by American Airlines for its daily morning departure from JFK to LAX, but nowadays it's flown by an Airbus A321. Well, I would say that uh, 707s and Idlewild slash JFK don't mix very well. <laughs> no, I, particularly for uh, American, who, you know, this was their brand new um, you know, entry into uh, jet aviation. And uh, to lose three aircraft in such a relatively short period uh, was just, you know, a bit of a nightmare for them. Uh, I mean, it was really nice that only one of them was uh, a pass on a passenger flight, but uh, mustn't forget that uh, on training flights, you know, those they were still uh, five or six uh, crew members on board the other two. Um, and but I'm you know, I'm surprised that the learning curve was um, a little slow, uh, and I'm also surprised that nowadays we would look at the FAA's previous requirement to do uh, two engine-out approaches on the same wing as madness, wouldn't we? Because we'd be going, for heaven's sake, that is such a relatively dangerous manoeuvre. But uh, back then, I guess that's the way they used to do it. In fact, I think that um, Delta Airlines back many, many years ago uh, doing a training flight in a DC-8. I'm not sure if it had something to do with one or two engine-out procedures, but uh, they crashed a DC-8 doing the same type of uh, maneuvers. Oh, wow. Wow. The, the Royal Air Force famously used to uh, conduct um, engine-out approaches uh, in the Canberra. The Canberra had two uh, wing-mounted pods about halfway down the wings um, because they thought, well, everyone needs to be able to bring the aircraft back if you have an engine failure. They killed more crews in training than they ever would have done if they'd just said, oh, you lose an engine, eject. Uh, you know, so it was so it was so easy for that aeroplane to turn upside down if uh, things went wrong, you put a bit too much power on uh, with the, you know, a poorly designed rudder in actually in both cases, because the 7.0 rudder system changed quite a lot after this. Um, you know, they increased uh, the sophistication of it and the change the size of the uh, aerofoils on the, uh, on the fin, uh, on the vertical stabilizer, as you guys call it. Uh, to cure a lot of the problems. But uh, those early 70s, they were susceptible. They really were. I was just, I'm sorry, I was trying to find uh, the reference to the DC-8 crash, which happened uh, um, in New Orleans. Uh, They were doing a training flight, and the tower controller cleared them, uh, let's see, circle to land, land on runway one, and the aircraft was observed to make what appeared to be a normal takeoff and departure. And then, uh, let's see, I'm trying to trying to find out the uh, pertinent data. But I guess uh, they 
pulled the power back. Yeah, simulated two-engine landing approach. Uh, same sort of thing yeah. uh, with the 707. Uh, see, we, we, we've learned so much, and, and we, we thought, talked about this earlier. We're in danger of learning all these lessons that people went through uh, because pe- we're not practicing these uh, kind of techniques, this kind of flying skills, which, uh, you know, for a while they were absolutely essential and everyone knew about them. Uh, we're in, in danger of having to relearn the wheel in a lot of these uh, circumstances because people now believe that technology uh, will overcome, uh, you know, all the problems. Well, won't necessarily, but... Uh, it would be nice to know that we all have the skills to fall back on to stop. For example, you know, on the finals turn, um, it's very easy if you are allowing the aircraft to yaw because you've uh, got a couple of engines out uh, to not notice that from the flight deck because now you're in a bank and that yaw is slightly disguised. It looks a little bit like a nose up uh, attitude rather than a yawing attitude unless you're looking down at the the slip indicator, uh, you may not realize how severe it is. And uh, as the Board of Inquiry uh, said, you know, you get much over 12 degrees and you're not going to be able to recover the airplane, uh, and which is effectively what happened. They built up to 17 degrees of yaw and the airplane, uh, they were fighting it with the ailerons, but eventually the power of the ailerons becomes insufficient. And uh, the airplane flipped over onto its back, and that's it. You know, the rest was inevitable. Uh, so, you know, uh, we need to um, aircraft designers, aircraft authorities, uh, aircraft regulators need to remember that uh, they're still basically airplanes. We all know how to f- should know how to fly them, and we need to understand what's going on when the aircraft does something a bit weird. Uh, and we have what we were talking about for the last few pain tales, uh, an aircraft upset. Yep. So, Jeff, um, I Liz think we'll talking. just do two more. Um, two number more. Number 12. Number 12. Sorry, number 13. Number, number 13. 13 and number 15. Okay. We're going to do two we'll pieces of feedback and then uh, got lots of feedback to carry over to the next Woo-hoo! episode. And uh, Liz is going, yoo-hoo, wee-hoo, yee-haw, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so let's move 13. to 13. In from, honor of Greg Peterson. Oh, because Greg Peterson is with us in the live audience. We're going to cover a piece of feedback he sent in. He said, I have a question about how ATC lines up aircraft on final approach, especially at smaller airports like Lexington. Uh, Big Ass Fans headquarters is essentially on the extended center line of the runway at LEX, uh, about six miles to the northeast, uh, runway four heading. I've noticed that sometimes ATC will turn aircraft coming from the southerly directions, southwest, south, southeast, onto the final approach for runway 22, right over top of the office. Other times, they'll send them 10 to 12 plus miles further out to line up on the approach. Is this at the controller's discretion, or are they doing it for uh, for a reason? There's not that much traffic at Lexington, like at Atlanta, Chicago O'Hare, or Charlotte, where they need to sequence them in with a couple dozen other aircraft. He said he's downloaded some flight paths from Flight uh, Radar 24 for given days and compared the paths, and it seems to follow a day controller pattern. One day they'll go all the way out to the northeast, and other days, they'll all turn right over the office. Interested to hear your thoughts. 
And uh, I was able to go to uh, fly to work. For some reason, I couldn't get flight radar to work for me, even though I'm a gold member. But I obviously don't know what I'm doing with it. Uh, so I went to FlightAware and tracked live yesterday a flight coming in from Atlanta to Lexington, flight uh, Acme Flight 2785, a Boeing 717. And uh, here is the flight path that we're showing on screen. And uh, they did a very nice pattern, but it, you know it's a little bit longer pattern than normal. And the weather conditions, I think, were relatively clear. But what I, it didn't show uh, in the view that I was watching at the time uh, was uh, any other aircraft that were in the area. And I can tell you from my own experience, Greg, that I've gone in and I've been way out and said, yeah, I have the airport in sight, and they've cleared me for a visual approach and let me set up as long a final, you know, base leg and final as I wanted to. Last time I was going in, uh, we got an extended downwind and turned to final because there was a regional airline coming in from uh, the uh, northwest on the other side of the uh, uh, airport. And so we had to extend to uh, for sequencing going into Lexington. So that is a situation where, yeah, uh, it's not Chicago O'Hare or Atlanta International or Charlotte. It's uh, But there are times when airplanes come into smaller airports at the same time and sometimes you get extended vectors just to allow for sequencing and uh, wake turbulence separation and all that kind of stuff so um, oh and also I mean there are many factors here there are times when we're clear the visual approach there's nobody in the pattern and some pilots like to be more conservative and extend the base leg a little bit further out just to make sure everything is all nice and stabilized on final um, other people um, are like um, like me, and uh, I guess you could call us Yeehaw! cowboys. I kind of like to <laughs> not extend things uh, as far out as you know, as I need, you know, or as as possible, just to kind of get the airplane on the ground sooner. And you I'll get tend down to get so you can taxi really fast. Yeah, I'll get down. Uh, it says I, I like to get down on the ground so uh, I can taxi fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> has nothing to do with it actually, but anyway. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll tend to do a little bit of a shorter pattern, um, if, if left to my own design. Um, but again, of course, all within, you know, our safe parameters and stabilized approach criteria and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, so, so many different, uh, reasons for different patterns, um, you know, going on at Lexington. What, what's that bit of airspace sticking out in your diagram well, uh, Jeff, I think fly what, around. I think that what FlightAware does, those dotted lines. Yeah. Uh, I think what FlightAware does, it tries to um, using AI try to figure out what your your cleared to path flight path is supposed to be, and then it'll it'll make changes because it, when I first started tracking this flight going in, it didn't have the the dotted blue line was basically headed directly to the Lexington VOR. Oh, and, okay. And then, right, and then, when it started seeing that the airplane was tracking in a different manner, it tried to update the um, the flight path, um, but it it did something weird like that. I don't know. I I was wondering the same thing. Nick I was going like, what is so it doing? It's, it's not airspace or anything. Similar. No, it's not an airspace thing. It's just okay, a fine. projected track. What the what the computer thinks that the the gotcha. flight is going to do. Thanks. So, but anyway, so it's a picture perfect uh, pattern there which leads me to believe that it was a radar vectored approach from tower. There are some places as well that 
Um, even though you tell them you have the airport in sight for quite a ways out and there's really no traffic, they like to hold on to you before they clear you the visual approach for whatever reason. And I've noticed that at Wichita, there's a particular tower controller there, or maybe it's just their standard operating procedures at that airport, but they'll, they'll hold on to you until you're just about to intercept final and then they'll clear you the visual approach. Um, not sure why, but different, uh, airports have different requirements and letters of agreement and that kind of thing. So that might be part of the reason for it. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, let's move to 15 then, and we'll wind things up. <laughs> this is from Larry Geezer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He says, Nick, yeah, he, you could have used one of these. Ah, oh, but uh, I don't fly a 747. So uh, yeah, well, but you know, use your imagination. I, I don't know, it's a, it's I a don't big know what that is actually. I, <laughs> Oh, it's a what? seriously. You don't know what that is. That's a that's something that uh, people uh, mostly people uh, that no no are, no. I I don't know what the aircraft is. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> I, I know what, I know what the I know what the blue sticker is. Okay. We're looking at a handicap parking uh, yeah. kind of a pass or whatever you call it, the sticker uh, placard uh, that's in the windshield of the. Uh, it does. I think that's a seven forty seven. I'm not sure though. I can't tell, actually. Do you have any idea? No, it's only that you're looking up so high. Yeah. I thought it might be a 7.4. Yeah, it does look it, pretty... It looks like a double bulb. Or... Yeah, just that, that windscreen looks... and It's an interesting shape that I'm not sure I recognize. I, I should be better uh, at Miami plane Rick. spotting. Yeah, <laughs> Miami Rick, where are you, man? Tell us what if that's a 7.47 or not. Maybe our... How is our... Um, live audience doing are they helping at all no no not at all slackers yeah oh well i I do like that disabled parking yes disabled parking there in the uh in the in the window of the uh of the big jet it's definitely a big jet that's for sure anyway so thank you larry he said don't laugh you you might be next (laughs) absolutely yeah i hall boxes says it's seven four yeah okay yep i hall boxes says it is a seven forty seven thank you Ah, much appreciated there. Um, gosh, we have so much uh, good feedback that we were going to cover today, and uh, we're running out of time. Yeah. Oh well. We are. We will. Uh, we'll move we it to the next the, show. Uh, we did the end of the show yesterday with Steffi, that didn't we? Though? Oh, that's right. We did the end of the show thing yesterday with uh, with Steph. So um, let's see. How do I transition here? I'll say. Um, Okay, that ends uh, the first part of uh, episode 518. And uh, in just a few moments, you're going to be hearing the lovely voice of Dr. Steph. (laughs) That's her running the marathon. I don't think that (laughs) that's a very accurate... Yeah, I'm not sure what you were doing. I thought maybe you were having a heart attack or something over there. No, 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 no. that was that was Steph's <laughs> lovely voice as she ran sounded, the marathon. It sounded like a uh, you're you're trying to imitate the how it was like Truman and Taco, her dogs. Yeah, I was going to say a dog. <laughs> Perhaps she sounds like a dog when she's running the marathon. I don't know. It's possible. It might have been very accurate. I've never run a marathon with Dr. Steph, and I never will, by the way, just uh, in case you're wondering. (laughs) (laughs) 
Whoa, look here. Uh, look who's joining us from her lakeside studio in South. It's a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. It's a tongue twister, all of it those is. things. I know it. Hey, I missed you guys. Sorry, um, we're kind of doing this... Um, a little bit separately, and um, but good to be here. Glad to um, be back on the show and add a little bit in. I know. Like, where were you? We were, you know, mm-hmm. Nick and Nick and myself and Liz were recording uh, part one of this uh, episode 518, and mm-hmm. you were nowhere to be found. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that we uh, we finally found you and you are finally joining us. <laughs> I'm not lost anymore. No. I mean, I'm lost, but you are lost. that's a different story. But I'm found. Yes. Um, Apologies for the beeping if you're listening to this. Um, there's some construction happening in my neighborhood, and it's quite close to my house. And there's apparently they're going to work until, like, I don't know, the sun goes down. I'm not sure. So. I was thinking maybe it was com- some kind of a bomb threat or something, or some kind of a I mean, like thing is about to go off, and maybe MacGyver. Mag- needs- MacGyver's here. Yeah. He's, he's, you got Hillel in your bathroom. MacGyver's in my bathroom right now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can I trade you? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. With all respect to Hillel. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Hillel. Don't take that the wrong way. No, no. You're much better than MacGyver, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. Uh, so uh, we set aside. I just, I, don't, I just don't know how Hillel does with bomb defusal. That's all. That's all um, I, don't, I, I don't know if nev- it's part of his skill set. That has never come up in conversation. Okay, we'll have to find out. That's weird, huh? Yeah, some secret mm-hmm. Israeli training there. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and do a news item that we kind of held for you. And it's, you know what? It's kind of a big deal, Steph. Um, mm-hmm. Just recently, the Biden administration uh, is no longer enforcing a U.S. mask mandate on public transportation after a federal judge in Florida ruled that the directive was unlawful, overturning a key White House effort to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Okay, that's one way to put it. Uh, Airlines welcomed the move on Monday by saying they would no longer require masks. Uh, let's see, according, here's a couple little uh, snippets from various news releases from various major airlines in the U.S. From Alaska Airlines, face masks have been like boarding passes for nearly two years. You couldn't fly without one. But as of today, masks are optional in airports and onboard aircraft, effective immediately. While we are glad this means many of us get to see your smiling faces, we understand some might have mixed feelings. Please remember to be kind to one another and that wearing a mask while traveling is still an option. Why would the people not wearing a mask be unkind to people wearing a mask? I don't get that. Anyway, Mm. American Airlines... Have you you met people, Jeff? Well, yeah, I have. I try to stay away from people as Mm -hmm. much as possible. So you get to stay on the other side of that door. Yeah. It's a nice quiet place up there once that door's closed hopefully oh wait hillel is in our live chat room and he does know something about (laughs) he's got he's got a bomb defusal defusal manual all right you're hired hillel actually i think he's the author of said manual macgyver get out (laughs) macgyver get out of here uh okay uh, American says uh, face masks will no, no longer be required for our customers and team members at U.S. airports and on domestic flights. Please note, face masks may still be required based on local ordinances or when traveling to or from certain international locations based on country requirements. Yeah. 
Delta Airlines, um, the sister airline of Acme, effective immediately, masks are optional for all airport employees, crew members, and customers inside U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. We are relieved to see the U.S. mask mandate lift to facilitate global travel as COVID-19 has transitioned to an ordinary seasonal virus. Thank you for your support in complying with the federal mask mandate and keeping each other and our customers safe during the pandemic. Yeah, you get the idea. There are several other little quotes here from various airlines in the uh, Airlines for America Industry Trade Group. And if you want to read them, um, maybe you already have by now, uh, we'll have this article in the show notes. So what say you, Steph? Uh, did you, oh, you know what, when you were, uh, we're going to talk about what you've been doing uh, since the last episode, mm. but, uh, and I don't think the mandate occurred. It didn't... occurred later that evening. Oh, it man, came down you just later missed that it. That's okay. I would have worn my mask anyway. Um, okay. Because, um, yeah. Uh, just, I think everyone has to assess their their own level of comfort and risk um, still. But I think this day has probably been a little longer in the making than maybe it should have been based on um, recent caseloads, especially um, in our part of the world here. You know, if you look at, um, I think you have to look at things a little bit differently now. So some of the airlines made the point that, um, and I, I don't think I'd say quite so certainly yet that it's transitioned to a, a normal seasonal virus. I wouldn't call COVID that. I think there's a lot that we don't know about it yet. Um, but I think at, we're at the point where everyone needs to assess their own individual risk level. Um, you know, and if for you, if you're someone who's a very high risk, if you think the um, potential threat to you is high for where you're planning to travel, where you might be going or people you might be interacting with, maybe you take that into account before you decide to go places, travel, resume some of these normal activities. I think for a lot of other people, they've been doing almost back to normal life for quite a long time now um, with very little in the way of consequences that they've seen and they can make their own decisions as to how they'd like to, to proceed. Um, I know airlines are very excited for this because basically they've been, you know, airline employees and the TSA and everyone else have kind of been turned into the cops regarding this measure and it's not something that they signed up to do necessarily. So I, I can certainly understand their their joy and um, um, happiness at seeing this no longer um, be a federal mandate that they have to enforce. Um, so yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of um, potentially mixed feelings. I know certainly, you know, in my day-to-day -day job, I don't um, work in infectious diseases. Um, but yeah, we see things all across the board from, you know, all different walks of, popula of the population. Some people are very comfortable not wearing a mask anymore. Some people want to make sure that everyone around them is still wearing a mask. So I think that's going to be the case for a while still. And everyone's just got different, different individual circumstances and different risk tolerances. So um, like the ones that when, uh, what was the one quote from Alaska, be kind to one another. If someone's wearing a mask, that's their option, their choice. Um, it's not doing anything that harms you. Do you have a mask there handy stuff? Nope. Sure okay, don't. so let's pretend you're wearing a mask right now, and uh -huh. we're sitting next to each other on the airplane. Okay, uh -huh. here we go. Well, all you're going to be able to see is this for me. <laughs> okay, I'm giving I'm giving Steph the stink eye. Yeah, don't, don't worry, do I that. Give a pretty good stink eye back. Yeah, is that your being kind <laughs> yeah. look? Jim? That's my being. Oh shoot, that's the opposite <laughs> of being kind, Liz. <laughs> I, we can still be passive aggressive, though, right? I, I misunderstood. Here, okay, let's try it again. Can, there, can we just be passive aggressive? Oh, well, we do that very well. Um, yeah. Okay, here. <laughs> there we go. 
That's my kind look. <laughs> Nothing says I'm judging you quite like squinty eyes over the top of a mask or with your glasses lowered. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough. But um, I was going to make one more point. Um, yes. You know, I started. I started to touch on it, and I think I talked. Started talking about something else. But uh, so I, I did read an interesting um, article in a large um, nationwide news publication recently that. Um, kind of posited that maybe we should be looking more at hospitalization rates related to COVID these days as opposed to just infectious rates because those two things have become very different and that might be a better barometer if you're someone who's not sure how to kind of navigate all the waters of the information that uh, you know we're kind of inundated with on a daily basis regarding this virus. That's great advice. I think it's I think it's a good yeah, I think barometer. Some people were saying watch. that for quite some time actually. Anyway, um, not to get political. We don't want to do that on this show for <laughs> sure. Um, Anyway, uh, so thank you, Steph, for your uh, your uh, comments regarding that. And now let's do a little bit of feedback. No, let's find out what you have been. Uh, hang on, I have this little thing. It's it's brand new. I've never used it before, and uh, it's called getting to know us. <laughs> oh wait a minute, I have used this before, haven't I? It sounds vaguely familiar to me. Yes. I mean, I know I haven't been here in a while, but I think I do remember this. Really? Oh, okay. Maybe. I thought it was a new thing. Maybe. Anyway, it is, of course, our little sound clip that we play for our Getting to Know Us segment. Now, I know we've already talked about uh, getting to know us earlier in the show, but hey, we didn't hear from Steph. And I think Steph has been doing a lot of fun, interesting stuff since uh, she's last been with us. So uh, go ahead. When was I last with uh, the show? I don't know. Were you on the last sure show? I don't no, think I was not on the last show. Oh. Um, that was last week. The on one before Thursday. last, I think. Because you, you guys did that one in the middle of the day, and I was at work, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. 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 So well, wait a minute. We, so we haven't heard about your. Um, I went to Mexico. Your skydiving thing. We don't have any yeah. pictures from yeah. that. Darn it. No. I, yeah. And for. Um, for good reason, because um, we had a they were um, naked. Talent. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's... No, that's not the reason. No, it, we were not naked. Oh. It was very hot though, um, so not a lot of clothing. It was um, you know shorts and t-shirt weather for sure um, on the Pacific coast of southern Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice, cute. Um, we were in um, Puerto Escondido, a cute um, kind of beach touristy destination, um, big surfing destination. So um, I was there for a wedding and uh, the wedding happened on Friday. Um, I flew down Thursday. I think we did the show the day before that, but I could be wrong on that. Someone will correct me if that's not the case. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anyway, I flew down on Thursday. Um, Should have had plenty of time to make my connection in Mexico City, but um, my flight departed late for unknown reasons about 45 minutes or so. That's not I apologize my dog. for the barking dog in the background. It's going to be all <laughs> kinds of ambiance here today, folks. Um, and um, got to, had a connection in Mexico City and had about an hour by the time my flight got to the gate to find my, to go through customs, immigration, mm. um, figure out if I needed to check a bag or not, because there was some question about that with traveling with skydiving gear. Oh, yeah. The, uh, folks who had been there before said, um, yeah, Mexico uh, asked that you put that in your checked luggage and not in your carry-on luggage. Um, were they I could right? Not find any, no, they were wrong. Okay. I couldn't find any official <laughs> guidance on that anywhere, um, <laughs> which, you know, who knows um, uh, if I just missed it or it wasn't printed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But because I was told that, I was trying to get my bag checked in. So I went to the counter and they kind of looked at me and said, well, <laughs> nope, you're too late. You can't check anything in for this flight because it's leaving in like 25 minutes. So you should just take everything with you to the gate. I said, okay, thanks. And went right through security. No problem. They didn't even bat an eyelid at the contents of my carry-on luggage. Wow. And got to the gate. The flight was supposed to have been boarding for like 40 minutes already. And it had not started boarding yet. Oh. Um, but somehow we left on time. That's the amazing thing to me about travel in other parts of the world. Everyone just gets on the plane with little to no fuss and they shut the door right behind the last person and you go. Yeah, that was... It's a way to do it. One. Yeah, it was very efficient. Um, hmm. um, so yeah, I got there. We did a um, rehearsal dinner on the beach, which was very nice. Friday was the um, the wedding that I was attending, a very fun wedding, um, small wedding, destination wedding, mostly close uh, friends and, and family. And we did some skydiving while we were there. A large number of the attendees are skydivers. So one of our friends, though, is a very talented photographer. So he has some very high quality, nice photos that I think he is trying to submit for publication. Um, so that's why I don't have those to share as ah, of yet. Gotcha. Um, but they're excellent photos, and I will share them when I get a chance to. I get the okay. Okay. So, um, um, Non-disclosure agreement that you had to sign? No, no. He actually did give us the okay to share to like our personal pages, but I just figured it's probably best just to not until he right. Oh yeah, until I know what happens with those pictures. Better so. safe than sorry. Sure, sure. Um, we did some surfing as well. That was a lot of fun, and um, actually, everyone was pretty good at surfing. We got some video from that too. Um, I should probably share some of those photos, um, but I haven't had a chance to go through and kind of edit it and edit out the parts that only show us because it was kind of everyone that was surfing at the beach. Um, the guy that was flying his drone there, we I think someone paid him to get the copy of the video. So it wasn't really associated with the uh, the surfing lessons that we were taking. It was just some mm. private guy at the, the beach doing his own photography. And what else did we do? I guess that was most of it. Um, I yeah, hope boxes is wondering about how long uh, on a skydiving wedding you you only have about forty five seconds to say yes. <laughs> to say and yes. you know what really messes it up with one of the skydivers that uh, you know, like when does anybody have any objections and they go yeah I do, and then <laughs> that screws up. Okay, do we have to go back in the airplane again? Do it again. Yeah, do this again. another another jump. Yeah, it's, it's always a mess. No, yeah, yeah. no. The the ceremony itself was very nice. It was on the on the beach at sunset. It was very picturesque and. Um, um, yeah, it was it was really nice. It was really beautiful. So, and and that beach was, I'll tell you what, we were the only people on that beach for miles, like looking up and down the beach. It was crazy. Wow. Nice. Very very nice. Um, so there was that. Um, and then I had a very similar situation on the way back. My flight departing Puerto Escondido got very delayed, leaving to the point where it looked like I was not going to make the connection, um, but um, did end up making the connection. Came in arrival um, in Mexico City into gate number two leaving out of gate number 36, which in Terminal 1 are complete opposite ends of the airport. So um, I ran. It's about a half a mile carrying all my stuff and got to the gate right oh, as boarding yeah, started. running. You have to At run? altitude. At altitude. So oh. I did some altitude training. Yeah. Because it's like almost 7,000 feet there in Mexico City. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's pretty yeah. high up. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I got back home, had enough time to work for two days, turned around and then went to Boston. And um, why was I in Boston? Has to do with uh, running. I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There is a marathon thing that they do every year. Oh, look at this. We have some pictures hey. from uh, some selfies that you took of yourself right before, I guess, uh, you uh, ran One is the right before and one is right after. Yeah, I thought so. So 
the one that says Athletes Village is um, in Hopkinton, and they bus you out to the start. And I've heard tales of uh, buses getting lost in the pass, and our bus driver uh, tried her hardest to get us lost on the way to this um, high school where they drop you off. Um, mm-hmm. They were she was following a whole line of school buses, and all of a sudden one of them decided to get off um, on 95 South when really it was supposed to be 495 South, mm-hmm. and everybody on the bus went. Wait no! a minute. No, you're going the wrong way. We've done this before. <laughs> like, we all knew. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. <laughs> So there was a girl up front trying to read, and, you know, the Boston Athletic Association provided step-by-step written instructions for how to get from pickup to drop-off. And it was a lot of instructions, but really there were like three main takeaways, but I guess they were just following each other and not really reading the instructions. I don't know. Um, But myself and another lady basically spoon-fed the instructions and were very forceful about, yes, we promise you are going the right way now. You can ignore those other buses that we just left behind because they're going the wrong way. Written instructions are for chumps. Right. <laughs> I don't know. We made <laughs> and, it. And people that want to actually get to the destination. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, no, I was quite glad I got on an early bus because if I had been on a later bus and that happened, I would have been stressing a little bit. Mm, yeah. Um, but plenty of time, you know, you want to be there at the start. You know, do your pre-start ritual stuff. Just, you know, find a moment of peace and zen and think about your race and use the the porta-potties because the lines and the queues can be quite long for those. Um, Mm -hmm. And get to the start on time. Everyone's got a pretty, uh, has a defined start time. So it was fun. There were a couple of um, APG listeners out on the course. Um, Oh, cool. I know I saw some feedback. There was someone who had uh, messaged me on Twitter they were at mile six, and I did not see them. I'm sorry. Um, and someone else, um, I think we have that in our feedback, so maybe I'll hold off on that for a second. I think it's number four. Okay. Um, but yes, we have some feedback from someone else who was well, you know on the what? course, let's just do it. that. Well, what, since we're already you talking about the marathon, let's just, okay. let's just well, do four. Yeah, okay, because I really don't have much else beyond that except for the marathon went well. I had a course personal best time oh, okay. um, by about 14 minutes. Not a personal best time overall in the marathon. It's a, it's a tough course out there, but um, it was a good day. I had a very, very solid first half. I'll say that much. Did you kind of like go too hard in that first half, you think? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, but people, have, so I'll say this too. People have asked me before about toenail issues. And generally, I don't have a lot of toenail issues with running. Um, the last time I did was on a, a fast downhill course. And I've done this course before. And I've done other downhill courses recently in the same shoes and had no problem. Um, and I think it was just because I was pushing a bit harder than usual. Um, mm. I think my toes were hitting the front of my shoes pretty substantially. And I have um, one very ugly looking toenail right oh. now. And oh. I think that was part of my problem on the second half where you end up going uphill. because I was having a lot of pain yeah. in those toes, trying to toe off and push up, up the hill. Ah. So I think that was part of the issue Now when you well. say toe off, you don't mean like the toe comes off. No, no. Okay, I mean, good. Like push off with your toes. Good. Oh, that's only after the marathon. Then the toe comes off. Well, usually After just a few the toenail. Days. Oh, just a toenail. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. It's not quite so dramatic. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, well. Did I you want to jump into that? Uh, yeah. I told you yeah. we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll get it. Told you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. 
let's do uh, item number uh, feedback number four, and I'm just trying to find Evernote. Here we go. Uh, this is from Mike. He says, hey, gang, and especially Dr. Steph, I was at the Boston Marathon watching a friend's daughter run, Olivia Becker. Uh, she and Dr. Steph were in the same wave, number three, wave three. Woo-hoo. Best wave. Yay. Just Woo. kidding. Oh, that's surfing, too. Is that like? <laughs> yeah. Re- yeah, it's a, it's a theme. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they have a great app for following the runner, so I made sure I punched in Dr. Steph. See the screenshot below, and now we're showing that on the screen if you're watching the video. Uh, let's see. We were, uh, in Wellesley at the halfway point just before the scream tunnel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does everybody scream when they're running through the tunnel? No. So, uh, Wellesley college, all of the girls from Wellesley college come out and line the street and they scream for hours, oh. just cheers and encouragement. And it's kind of, um, a famous point where people will pull over to the side and, and kiss some of the, um, girls who are out there cheering and, and yelling. So. Oh, nice. It's, yeah. Okay. It's, it's quite loud. It's, it's quite energetic. Okay. Very Interesting. Nice. Uh, let's see. I looked for Steph, but I didn't see her. A lot of runners going by, and it's hard to read a five-digit bib number, but I was there for her anyway. Yay. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I took a bunch of video about the, same, about the time she should have passed by, so I'll look through my videos to see if I can see her. What were you wearing? Go back to the uh, previous picture. Oh, that's right. Well, okay. Yeah, look at the previous picture. There we go. Not the, wearing, not the gray sweatshirt I was wearing. Oh, uh, I'll have to get a different picture. The green uh, tank, and it says O'Leary Racing Team. That's my coach. Ah. So. I get it. O'Leary, kind of a Boston thing. He's from Boston. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I knew that. I didn't, actually. Um, <laughs> let's see. We hopped in the car and drove into Boston, so we were at the tunnel under Mass Avenue just before the runners make their last right and left turns to the finish to watch again. Anyway, congratulations on another finish, Dr. Steph. If you do it again, let me know, and we'll be sure to try to find you after. A family meeting area is the best spot. And if you need anything uh, brought to the finish, like a jacket or pants, uh, we can probably help with that. I tend to lose my jacket and my pants. No, just kidding. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've heard that. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with marathons. (laughs) Nothing. Totally different thing. No, thanks, Mike. Thanks for being out there. You know, the the crowds this year were absolutely phenomenal. It was nice to have the race back on Patriots Day. That's usually when the race is held, that holiday up in Massachusetts. Has not been held on Patriots Day for, uh, I guess, since 2019 because of the pandemic. They didn't have the race in 2020. And then last year they pushed it to October. So it was on Columbus Day last year. Um, But yeah, the crowds were, they were the best I've seen at Boston. So thank you for being out there. It made a big difference, especially when we were for those of us who are struggling in the latter half of the race. Yeah. And hey. yep. oh, I was going to finish up the rest of my um, travel um, story here because mm-hmm. he mentioned um, he tried to find after the race and the family meeting spot. So <laughs> um, I had almost more difficulty with my travel back from Boston on Monday night than I had going to and from Mexico with my delayed flights. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a message from I was flying home with JetBlue on Monday evening, and had a message from them on Sunday night that my flight was canceled. I went, oh, great. That's nice. Lovely. So I'm supposed to be at work on Tuesday morning. The latest flight I could take back was that JetBlue flight. There was actually a later Delta flight, but by the time I got around to booking my travel, it was already sold out. So I didn't uh, quite get uh, that opportunity. But the flight before that was an American flight at 4.35 p.m., 
So I jumped on the website really quick and booked that flight thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not sure how I'm going to make a 4.35 p.m. flight when my race starts at 10.50 in the morning. Yeah, I'm like doing, kinda, doing kinda the math backwards. Close. I'm like, man, if I run a if I run a four hour marathon, so like let's just be realistic, I could easily run a four hour marathon. That's about the slowest I could run and make this flight. So I ran at three forty four. I finished at two thirty five p.m. I check. I I was um, staying with my cousin who wasn't checking out that night, but I took my bags to a friend's hotel who was just past the finish line on Boylston Street. I took my bags there in the morning. Dropped my bags off at his hotel. After I finished. Went back to that hotel, grabbed my bags, got right back on the T on the subway, and went to the airport. Went straight to the gate and got on the airplane. Woohoo! Made it. Ooh, Steph, Steph does it again. Yeehaw. And then they were trying to tell me that they they had sold out of the IPAs on the flight, oh. but they managed to find one more. Oh, good. Thanks it's like thank goodness. That's good. It what kind of IPA do they have? The Goose Island. It's Goose Island. Yeah. Sorry. Sweet. Yeah, that's yeah. that'll do. Yeah, it worked. That's and awesome. then I passed out as soon as I finished. The <laughs> so how, how do you feel about this marathon? You feel pretty good or? It was, it was a tough one, man. You can yeah. look at it. You put that uh, picture up with my, um, that Mike shared with my, my times. And mm-hmm. you can see where it kind of like falls off the cliff there um, after the halfway point. Um, yeah, it was the, the last half was tough for sure. Um, I actually had a uh, half marathon personal best time in this race. So my halfway split was the fastest I've ever run a half marathon. Um, but I'm glad I went for it. I was, I was really trying for a, a really big personal best time and I didn't quite get there, but you know, you learn something from every race. Awesome. And Mike Smith, uh, I was, I was thinking, wait a minute, is he, isn't he the Sonics, uh, pilot? I think he is. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for, uh, chiming in Mike and, uh, hopefully next year you'll, you'll see Dr. Steph and get to meet up with her and give her some pants to wear. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on to item number three. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said that. <laughs> I'm not wearing any pants right now. No, I know. <laughs> I can see that. We're only doing this is like Zoom, right? Just from like the waist up. We're good. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I have another little camera. Okay. Um, just like uh, the, the secret microphone in the bathroom that I have set up for hello. For hello. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, talk about number three. This is from Brad and uh, we actually, uh, covered this on the last episode, but we thought, Hmm, since it was just, uh, Captain Nick and I and Liz, um, we thought maybe this would be a good thing to kind of readdress, um, on, uh, on this show, uh, when somebody like Dr. Steph is here with us. So, uh, Again, from Brad, uh, this is Brad Nunn, the uh, Airbus pilot for a uh, big airline uh, located in Charlotte. And uh, he, we talked about the, I don't think you were with us when we talked about the hard landings, or, or maybe I you was. were. Oh, okay. yeah, I absolutely right. was. Yeah. So this is the same yeah, Brad. Same okay. Brad. Okay. Uh, hello to the entire APG crew. It was great watching APG 514 and seeing everyone in attendance for a great podcast. While listening to the great comments and advice to Carolina Jeff, who is about to undertake flying lessons, I was thinking that a computer flight simulation software might be advantageous for him. Although it was not mentioned, I was curious about your thoughts and opinions if this would be helpful. I happen to own Microsoft 
Flight Sim 2020, X-Plane 11, and P3D, which are all very realistic home computer flight simulators. I'm not sure if any of you have any hands-on experience with these programs, but I think they would be extremely valuable for Carolina Jeff in his pre-lesson preparation. Again, just looking for your thoughts on this option. Thanks again for an amazing podcast, Blue Skies and Tailwinds. Thanks, Brad. Well, you know what? People like you sending in feedback so that we can answer it is that's the key to making this a fantastic and amazing podcast. And I think we have a I think I got a a little overlay with a Microsoft flight sim in there just to kind of give that plug. And so that it can pay us, you know, oh, no, or maybe I didn't uh, do that. Oh, well, Um, so. It doesn't matter. We all know what Microsoft FS 2020 or 2021 or whatever looks like. Um, Steph, what do you think? Do you think that that would be a good uh, good idea for somebody like I Jeff? think it's a very reasonable idea. What, what um, I'm trying to – I know we talked about uh, Carolina Jeff and all of his stuff as well. I'm trying to remember all the details of what we um, – Yeah, we were – he was asking discussed. for advice and like schools. Uh, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a lot. I, I remember we, we talked a whole bunch about um, – Right. We spent a lot of time talking about it because we kind of thought that was helpful for potentially a lot of people out there. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're right. We definitely did not touch on flight simulators um, in terms of lesson preparation. Um, it, so I personally have not done that. I don't own any flight simulators or computer-based flight simulators. Okay. Um, but I know plenty of people who do. And I even know, um, you know, it sounds like maybe... Uh, so Brad, um, you know, uses these for personal enjoyment. Jeff, I've got and, a couple of other um, items if we want to fill out the... Uh, like oh, to, sorry fly certain approaches with them just to to you know pull out their charts and and jeff you look very confused right now i'm sorry i'm <laughs> super distracted like, by what sorry. going on on your screen Liz, Liz, all this over so i'm sorry um <laughs> he's like his, so his eyes got like really big like i thought he was like trying to get my attention or something well, so for some uh, reason liz's uh connection to me has always has been very very faint i could barely hear her. and all of a sudden something happened then it got back to the normal levels and i had my gain like really really super high and she's like screaming at me in my Sorry, I could actually hear her too, so that's, that's part of what you was can see distracting. It was. Well, it was part of what was distracting. I was like, "What am I listening to right okay. now?" Say something right uh, now, Liz, just to kind of check say your volume. Something right now, Liz. Okay. Is that okay. Yeah. Better? Now it's down again. Okay, <laughs> okay I'm going to leave it know. on the low side just in case it kind of decides to I'm do the. Start over, and I'm going to move uh, yeah, my go. screen so I don't have to look at your face right now. Okay. There we go. Here. <laughs> I'll just go to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You. So. No, thanks. So, Brad, um, great question, uh, great advice for for Carolina Jeff. Um, I personally don't have um, really any experience with um, flight simulators or computer home computer based flight simulators, um, but I certainly have a lot of friends who who do use flight simulators. Some who are pilots and some who are not pilots. Um, and I know um, I can think of at least one person I know of who flies professionally, but um, because of seniority, doesn't. Um, maybe fly every single day, um, who enjoys using the flight simulators just to um, look at, you know, various different approaches in different parts of the world, thing, world things that he might not fly in his, his day job. Um, so that can be um, an interesting um, option for, for people who are looking to, um, you know, just, just get some realistic practice. Um, I'm not sure in terms of, you know, for the um, like primary student, um, 
I, I think it would certainly help um, a lot for, for those who are instrument students, because I think you can um, really load approaches and potentially and, and do that type of thing with flight simulators. Um, I think for primary students, it's more about getting the hands-on experience in the airplane, but maybe I'm wrong on that. So I'd actually be curious to know what um, folks in our community think. You know, if there's there's folks out there who were using home computer-based flight simulators while they were doing private, uh, primary private pilot training. That was a tongue twister for me. Um, was it useful for you? Um, and if if so, why why was it? If not, why not? Um, I think iHaul Boxes is making the point that there's Redbird uh, Redbird Sim Centers as well, which are a little bit more um, realistic in terms of simulation. It's not a not a home based um, program, so not so easy to do in the privacy of your own home while you're just sitting and going over your flight lesson plans or um, some pre lesson preparation. Um, but if you can't go out flying, say if the weather's not great, um, it might be a good option if you have that available to you at your flight school. Um, I've been to flight schools where they have them, and I've, gosh, I've done um, a couple approaches in one of them. And yeah, it's it's pretty realistic. So even if it's not, you know, the full airline, like, Category D flight simulator. Mm-hmm. Definitely helpful. Yeah, going through procedures and that kind of thing. Yeah, procedures, flows. I think flight simulator can be very good for those types of things. Oh, I have to wear oh. pants if I go there. Yeah, you oh. got to. That's the downside of the. <laughs> See, if you're doing your if you're doing your home <laughs> computer based flight simulator, yeah. pants optional. You just be like Steph and I right now doing the show. Clothing no pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so thank you, Steph, for adding your two cents to the uh, to the discussion regarding flight simulation and uh, getting Carolina Jeff all prepped up for his upcoming lessons. And uh, this mm-hmm. is exciting. I can't wait to hear how this all goes for him. Yeah. And, and Brad Jeff, Nunn sure and you, Carolina say, Jeff, Jeff and sure Steph. Send in feedback. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we can, you know what, we'll, we'll have a Charlotte meetup and then we can get some live feedback from Carolina Jeff. Hey Jeff, who do we talk to about getting your schedule uh, situated the correct way so that you have I Charlotte Lay? We need to find somebody that knows what they're doing when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> I you know I might actually have a Charlotte layover or two next month. I'm not sure. Oh, nice. I'll have to look. Just in but. time for some nice spring weather. We can sit outside, enjoy a beer somewhere all and discuss yeah. all, all things aviation. Absolutely. And pants. Okay. Uh, we'll number, wear pants. We will. Oh, yeah. I of will, some, anyway. Of some sort. <laughs> uh, let's see. Number 10. Uh, this is from Anonymous. And uh, they say, hey, crew. Uh, they want their name left out due to the kind of sensitive nature of the question. I have a problem. Uh, I don't like wearing pants. No, wait. No, that's something else. That's the problem I have. Um, after many years of being... A land-bound aviation enthusiast, I've decided to learn to fly. While doing research into the requirements for a first-class medical, I learned that the FAA doesn't take too kindly to even common mental health issues, such as anxiety. While my medical history doesn't automatically disqualify me, I realize that the path to getting my medical is going to be long and expensive. The internet is full of horror stories of aviation dreams being crushed by merciless AMEs. Uh, I realize the internet is not a reliable place when it comes to things of this nature, but it does beg the question, how do you go about finding a good and fair, um, what was the AME? Aviation Medical Examiner. Aviation Medical Examiner, thank you. 
uh, in the first place, AME. I appreciate your insight, and, and thank you for all the hard work y'all put into the show. Best. And this is, again, from Anonymous. And... I don't know if he wants us to use his opposing yeah, bases can, we'll, call we sign. Can, we can skip it. I'm not sure he was yeah. clear on that. Anonymous is fine. Just yeah, we're we're going to leave it anonymous. Yeah. I mean, so, and he's not alone in his question. You know, Although, things like this wait, have come up. Wait, hang on. Oh? I have to say that his, his issues are much more um, significant and concerning to me now that I realize he listens to opposing bases. That is a medical condition in and of itself. Um but I wouldn't I mention it I to the AME. I suffer from it too, and I definitely don't <laughs> disclose it on my. Yeah, I've never heard of the show. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I've never met those guys. <laughs> I've never met those guys. I solemnly swear, <laughs> never shared beers with them. Or nope, me neither. Discussed all things aviation related. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, and, and um, what I was uh, thinking is that you know, anonymous, you are not alone in having these types of questions, and these are. This is a tricky situation to navigate, right? Because um, like anything in life, I think not all AMEs um, are necessarily created equal. Um, there are some out there who um, will seek out additional training and expertise for certain types of medical conditions that people suffer from, and they might become um, an expert in one um, area over another. And I'm certainly aware that there are AMEs out there who um, are more... Um, you know, kind of their their subspecialty is is um, seeing pilots who do have mental health issues, you know, anxiety included, but certainly all t all different types of things. Folks who have a history of taking certain medications that maybe the FAA doesn't look favorably upon, um, and helping those pilots um, kind of navigate the system and figure out what they need to do as efficiently as possible, and hopefully as uh, you know cost effectively as possible to get the medical certification that they're looking for. Um, how you go about finding those AMEs, um, that's tricky because they're not listed that way um, on the FAA website. So it's not easy to know if the AME that's local to you has any, you know, special interest or area of expertise um, above and beyond just general medical practice. Um, so I found that really kind of the best way to to do this is actually word of mouth. And this can be can be tricky. Um you know, if you're if you're not really plugged into a network of pilots as of as of yet, um, but there's a lot of information out there on the internet, as you've you've noticed with all the horror stories. Um, but uh, to some extent, if you if you are suffering from something that um, from a medical condition that perhaps um, is a little bit trickier to uh, get a, a a medical with. Um, I think it's a good idea to start to join different pilot groups, um, perhaps pose these questions to a wide variety of folks. Um, you're kind of doing that here. So um, if anyone has any insight for Anonymous, if they've, you know, you can certainly write to us also anonymously and we can um, put the anonymous folks in touch with anonymous folks and see if we can spread that word of mouth that way. Um, you can also do always do a consultation with an AME. You don't have to... Um, go in with the express goal of getting your medical on that visit just to, you know, say, hey, here's here's my past medical history. Here's the medications I take. Um, what hurdles or barriers do you think I would run into if I were to try to get a, a first, second, third class medical, for example? Um, and any good aviation medical examiner should be able to give you that, uh, the courtesy of that type of consult. So that might be a good place to start as well. Um, but yeah, it can be tricky. And I've seen, you know, certainly... AMEs that I would highly recommend, and I've seen one or two out there that I 
really wouldn't send anyone to see <laughs> just because of, um, you know, different, different quirks and things that were, um, you know, not as good of an experience. You do have to be careful with that. And I was trying to find um, a reference to a an AME that has a reputation for really being great with people that have hard cases uh, to deal with, like yours, Anonymous. And it's um, that reference was given to me by somebody who is very close to uh, the the APG, uh, a big part of our APG community, and I have not been able to find said reference, but I think he's up in the Chicago area. I know that that may not be anywhere near where you live. Yeah, and just, just realize if you do have one of these trickier to navigate medical conditions, then you may need to travel to find the AMA that is going to be helpful for you because um, there's a lot of generalized guidance given to AMEs where if there's um, you know something that comes up that is flagged because it's basically going through a checklist of, of items, right? So it's, you know, are you in good general health? Or if you have any of these conditions, you know, that kind of gives you a, a secondary pathway to look at. And if there's things that come up, then basically they're either going to not approve, not issue the medical, do a denial, or send it to Oklahoma City for, um, you know, for additional guidance for them, basically, kind of a deferral, and then have to deal with whatever they end up saying about it. So um, I think before you go in with that piece of paper in hand to actually have your medical, you know, decided upon on that day, get the consultation first. And like I said, I think it's worthwhile reaching out to other large groups of pilots um, in different forums. Um, there's good ones out there, even on social media networks. Um, you just have to make sure that you're kind of in with the right group of folks before you start taking, you know, too much advice of what's being said. All right. Uh, in my ear from the control room, Liz says that she has found the reference. It's, do it's Dr. Bruce C-H-I-E-N. That's right. Chain, That's it. Bruce, New Chicago. Dr. Bruce C-H-E-I-N. I-E-N. Oh, I-E-N. No, I-E-N. Uh, Bruce near Chain Chicago. Uh, near Chicago. And uh, so he, he might be look, <laughs> he might be worth looking up. Um, because again, he has a, a great success record and he deals with a lot of people with these kind of issues that, uh, could be a little bit, you know, more difficult or, you know, uh, complicated. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, um, there's actually a fair number of medical conditions out there that fall outside of the rubric or template that the FAA gives to AMEs. So if they are going through your stuff and they go, well, this doesn't match with anything, then it basically gets deferred and sent off as well. And then you might be sent down a rabbit hole of all kinds of additional testing, expense, visit, doctor's visits. So it's really important before you go in for that initial um, visit with your AME to make sure that you're with an AME that knows how to take care of the specific problem that you have. Right. Exactly. And uh, yes, Liz, I will make sure that we put that in the show notes for reference to anybody out there who, who might have a somewhat a more difficult case than normal that they have to navigate uh, to get their medical certificate. So, all right. Very good. Thank you, Liz, for uh, finding that for me. Um, I was frantically trying to do that search myself <laughs> and I uh, just wasn't stumbling upon it. I know we've talked about it a few times in the past. I, I would take yeah. forever to go back and Bolingbrook, Illinois. Oh, Bolingbrook. Uh, it's a suburb of Chicago. Okay, a Chicago suburb. And uh, it's very sought out and very busy. So you have to be um, 
tenacious when it comes to you know, trying to get hey, their attention. And, and fight for yourself, advocate for yourself. Just forget, uh, don't forget that these are just people on the other side of um, the coin as well. All these doctors and medical professionals that you're seeing, even the, um, you know, the powers that be in Oklahoma City. So um, make sure you're standing up for yourself. And if something doesn't seem right, keep fighting for it. Hey, speaking, you know, every time I think of a, an AME and the, uh, the the trouble that some people have with color blindness, mm. and you remember they we talked about some of them, we've had it on our show yeah. a couple a few times uh, where people have you know done the standard you know book whatever they call that book again it's a Japanese name Ishiwara that's the one exactly yeah. yeah um and uh, a lot of people you know then when they can't pass that test then they go well I'm sorry can't be a pilot. Uh, well, then, you know, not that, even realizing there's that, a whole litany of that other AME tests that obviously can determine different know. types of. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that that device that uh, they use to determine whether it's a green light, red light, whatever, and you stand a certain. They, um, last time I was doing my medical at the uh, AME that I use, I noticed uh, right there on the table was one of these. I thought, what the heck is that? And then, I, oh, I know what that thing is. It's one of those fancy lights that they have in case you can't do the Ishawahara Harawara uh, test. <laughs> yes, that one. That one. Yeah, and there I mean sometimes there's you can do demonstrability tests and things like that. Yeah. Um so you know, if you come up against something that seems like a barrier or, a, or a hurdle, um doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the road. I just thought it was cool that the, oh, the yeah. guy that I use um has one of he those actually things has in the, his office. Has the stuff to, to be Again, able to do it because this guy obviously knows. That, you know, yeah, there's, and I don't know that they're necessarily it. required to have that equipment themselves. They could probably make the probably referral not. out to someone else to have the, to have that testing done. Yeah, um, I know there's kind of a, a base standard of equipment they need to have if they're doing uh, second and third class medicals and then first class medicals. So yeah, um, and you know, um, a lot of these AMEs, um, you know, their their regular day job may be it could really be in any medical specialty. Um, so they're going to come from all different backgrounds of medicine as well. Um, and it might be something that they do on a full-time basis. They might only do aviation medical exams, or they might have a busy practice with whatever their specialty is. Mm -hmm. Liz was just telling me that uh, Dr. Bruce Cheen uh, is a an anesthesiologist. Um, there you go. His, his specialty. Mm -hmm. So watch out if he's trying to put something over your mouth. He's probably trying to put you to sleep. <laughs> just, a, just a warning. From you know, anesthesiologists can be, can be backstabbers, too. Yeah, really? Ugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, there's a lot of overlap in our field yeah. sometimes. All right. Well, awesome. Well, we were able to uh, have a little bit of uh, time with our favorite APG um, crew member, Dr. Steph. Aww. And uh, we uh, missed you on the last show. We're glad that you were able to make it on this one. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again next week. And Yeah, I hope so. I'm planning on not traveling for at least a little bit of time here. So hopefully we can make all of our schedules Line up. Jeff, um, here's a great comment from Mark Anderson, who, as you know, works with the CAA in the UK. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's a cardiologist. Liz says this is from uh, Mark Anderson, a cardiologist uh, and works uh, for the CAA. If you get to see, uh, sent to see a specialist, it must be one who is familiar with the aviation regula regulation requirements to do the right tests and write a report that contains the information needed. Absolutely. Very, mm -hmm. very important. Uh, thank you, Mark. For that, and um, yeah, I'm sure that there is going to be even more information and advice uh, sent in from those who are listening to 
this uh, particular piece of feedback. And uh, we welcome that, of course. And hopefully we can help out uh, Anonymous and whoever else out there may have the actual or the the same kind of uh, concerns regarding mm-hmm. and getting a medical certificate. Um, our community is great, isn't it? Um, oh, our, it's fantastic. And our live yeah, audience yeah. is a cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Love it. You know what we should do? Since this is the end of the show, we should probably just do our okay. end of the show routine. Yeah. And uh, so I'll uh, say thank you for for listening to our show today. We do appreciate that. And tell all your friends. And uh, we are uh, we have an, uh, a website called Airline Pilot Guy. Lots of different stuff there on that website that you can check out. Uh, information about the crew and the community and the community calendar and uh, APG library. We have information about the plane tales and uh, merchandise and calendar. I, I did mention the calendar when I talked about oh, the community. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, and so much more. So. Uh, head over to airlinepilotguide.com and check it out. And we are also on the social meds, Steph. We are. You can check out our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. We're also on Twitter. We're at APG Crew, and our individual Twitter handle information is pinned to the top of the page, I think. I should double check that. I haven't looked in a while. And you can also find us on Instagram. We're APG Crew there. Um, I'm not even going to pretend like I post next artwork there anymore. <laughs> Um, She's but maybe all I'll over get back it. to it at, at some point. In the I doubt future. it. Don't I even say it, it anymore. I know. I'm not going <laughs> to. Well, watch. I'll, I'll go do it right Don't now. Promises to there. It's really not that difficult. Just, That's the way you get stuff to do stuff. Tell her she's never going to do it. So just don't. Fine. Just give up. Yeah. <laughs> Never tell Steph that she can't do something. <laughs> She'll prove you wrong. All right. And uh, let's see. We're also on something that's kind of a quasi-social media thing called Slack. And we have, of course, Hillel. He's always... Uh, hey, Hillel, do you have time for Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. I know. We're used to it. Come on over here. He's doing some bomb disposal. He's Thank Oh, you. yeah. He was doing some bomb disposal, Liz says, um, <laughs> in the shower. Kind of like Kramer, you know, making salad the, or whatever. The beeping here stopped. I'm not sure if that's oh. a good sign or a bad sign. Yeah. That, or did Hillel probably, get here in Hillel the Hillel must have been there first before you headed over here guy. to my bathroom. It's just that good. What a guy. Yeah, he is. He's an awesome guy. Well, tell us about Slack, Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. We do appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Well, at least he's being honest. Um, all right. Well, I guess I'll have to go to the store and pick up some more skin lotion. And also, we'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, director, control room person. There Yay. she is, Liz in Toronto. Thanks, Liz. Hi, everybody. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Great to see Steph back. Yes. And that does it for this week's show. And until next time, we're wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. 
Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See y'all later. Cheers. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly